Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, September 19th, 2019. So I have been told this is our fourth study session on Tony Morrison's Tar Baby. Uh, we're picking up at the very beginning of chapter five. Uh, this is a lengthy chapter, so we're not even going to finish uh, the chapter today, even with both audio segments, but we will make uh, a large dent. <clears throat> we normally would start with an audio segment, and that was my goal. I failed. Uh, Tony Morrison uh, did a number of interviews, specifically way back in 1981, which is the same year uh, that the book Tony Moore, uh, Tar Baby uh, was published. Uh, the legend Tony Morrison did an interview uh, with NBC Today, the NBC Today show uh, on March 24th. And she was talking about uh, Tar Baby specifically. I uh, tried to find uh archive of the video. I failed. So I'm just going to read the transcript because I think it gives some insightful points uh, about the text we are reading. It reads, uh, and it's ho- uh, hosted by Jane Pauley. Uh, and so Pauley says, Toni Morrison has a dazzling Literary career, she was recipient of the 1978 National Book Critics Circle Fiction Award. She has her fourth book out now. It's called Tar Baby, and it reestablishes her as one of the serious authors of the 20th century. And I don't think I exaggerate when I say any of that. The name of the book is Tar Baby means a lot to a lot of people. And most of what it means isn't particularly nice. How do you mean it? And what does it mean to you? And when did you learn about the tar baby. Toni Morrison. The first thing 
It was a children's story that I heard long before I'd ever read it in a child's book. And it was a told story about a rabbit and a tar baby and a farmer and foraging, a typical little animal story of a small animal that manages to outwit the authority. It's funny. You laugh at the end, but there was something in it that was a little frightening to me as I thought about it much later. Tar Baby is just not is not just that story, though. It also has a very strong negative connotation. It's a racial slur. It's the kind of thing the white boys on the block will call the little black girl as she walks down the street. But when I began to write this book, I began to focus on that Tar Baby story as a kind of an old and very ancient myth, and there was some quality in it, some elements in it that seemed to me to be deeper than the children's story. This is uh, the co-host, Jane Pauley again. Could you, without telling us the story, describe who in your novel, Tar Baby, is the Tar Baby? Morrison, the young and very beautiful Jadine. Pauley, the very beautiful, very well-educated. Morrison, very well-educated, beautifully integrated into American society. Hmm, cowbell. Black, model, well-educated, very sophisticated, very unterrified by everything, and she has all of the 20th century options. She's molded and refined. Pauly, isn't she the 20th century black ideal? Morrison, of course, But the point is that such women have so many options, so many things they can do, and they want to be lean and male and excellent and exquisite. And perhaps they have given up what was the third idea in the tar baby. And that was the idea of being able to nurture, being able to hold a civilization together because tar, after all, is a substance that was used to hold things together. Pauly, you dedicate your book to a number of women, I picked out the name that I recognized because it was your name, but the others I didn't know. Who were they? Morrison, they were a series of women in my family, my sister, my mother, her mother, her mother, and her mother. One daughter begetting another daughter as far back as I can go, and they seem to me to be those women who are able to be both adventurous hard-working women who also had the ability to nurture both. They were ship and safe harbor. They didn't see a conflict between serious work and the nurturing quality. Pauly, you say this is the highest quality to cherish in a black woman? Morrison, in any woman, in any woman. It's the kind of thing that I think the women's movement has given nurturing and motherhood sort of a bad name and it has no currency. It has no value as thought it were a limiting role. All I'm suggesting is that there is no conflict between a career and nurturing this life. And black women particularly have understood that because they've had to be on the market on the job market and homemakers at the same time so that putting them together enhanced their lives and broadened their lives in a way that being totally confined to the house or totally out on the job market would never have done. Pauly, am I taking you too literally to assume that of all the things you are, author, editor, 
intellectual, mother, that the most important to you is mother? That's not an exaggeration at all. This is Morrison again. It is the most important thing I do. It's the thing that made me grow. I paid very serious attention to those children. If you listen to them, it will make you smarter. It will make you better and it will genuinely make you an adult. And that's all I ever really wanted to be was a grown up. Pauly, I would suspect that your heart still resides in Lorraine, Ohio. You are a major figure in New York City, and yet family is still Lorraine. Morrison? Oh yeah, they are. My sister, my brother, my aunts, my uncles, they still live there. And I, it's a wellspring for me. Home always is. It's a place where I, there's always one place where you sleep all the way down in the mattress. All the way down. You're never just a little bit awake, and that's home for me in my mother's house. Conclusion, but this is from March of 1981. Again, this is the very year that the novel Tar Baby was published. With that, uh, we will get started. We are starting at the very beginning of Chapter 5. This is The Grandcestor, Toni Morrison, Tar Baby, Context of White Supremacy, Audio Segment Number 1. Chapter 5 Laughing? Margaret could not believe her ears. I'm telling you, they were in there laughing. I was looking right at them when you called out the window. Good God! What's gotten into him? I don't know. Are you scared? Not really. Well, sort of. You don't know him, do you? Know him? How would I know him? I don't know. This is making me crazy. Maybe we should do something. What? We're the only women. And Undine, should I go to the Broughtons and... Jadine stopped and sat down on Margaret's bed. She shook her head. This is too much. What did he say? asked Margaret. When you all had dinner... Did he say what he was doing here? Oh, he said he was hiding, that he'd been looking for food after he jumped ship a few days ago, that he was trying to get something out of the kitchen and heard footsteps and ran up the stairs to hide. Apparently, he didn't know what room he went into. He was just waiting for a chance to get back out. Do you believe him? I believe some of it. I mean, I don't believe he came here to rape you. Me, maybe, she thought, but not you. How did he get here? He says he swam. That's impossible. It's what he said. Well, then he can swim back. Now. Today. I'm not going to sleep with him in this house. If I had known that, I would have had a heart attack. All night I waited for that bastard Valerian to come up here and tell me what the hell was going on. He never showed. And Sidney was patrolling the halls with a gun. I thought he would have killed him by now. What does he think? He's angry. Andine's scared, I think. I'm going to have it out with Valerian. He's doing this just to ruin Christmas for me. Michael's coming, and he knows I want everything right for him. And look what he does to get me upset. Instead of throwing that... 
that nigger. Right, nigger, instead of throwing him right out of here. Maybe we're making something out of nothing. Jade, he was in my closet. He had my box of souvenirs in his lap. Open? No, not open, just sitting there holding it. He must have picked them up from the floor. Oh, God, he scared the shit out of me. He looked like a gorilla. Jadine's neck prickled at the description. She had volunteered nigger, but not gorilla. We were all scared, Margaret, she said calmly. If he'd been white, we would still have been scared. I know, I know. Look, Valerian let him in. Valerian has to get him out. I'm sure he will anyway, but you talk to him and I will too. It will be all right. You want to calm down. Let's do the breathing exercises. Cool out. I don't want to breathe. We have to do something. We can't leave it up to Valerian. Listen, let's leave. Take the boat to town and fly to Miami. We won't come back till he's gone. Oh, but Michael. She touched her hair. I'll telephone him. He can meet us in Miami, and if Valerian's got his senses back. But it's the 22nd. There isn't time. And what about Sidney and Ondine? You don't think he'd go after Ondine, do you? Well, we'll start. We'll look like we're going and tell Valerian why. We can call the police ourselves when we get to town. Is the boy here? Margaret asked. Yes, but... Jade, come on now, you've got to help. There's nobody else. Let's see if Valerian will send him away. You said they were in there laughing. Let's wait and see. Pack just in case. I'll get reservations. All right, but I'm not going to leave this room until I know something definite. I'll bring you something to eat. Yes, and please hurry. I don't want to take a Valium on an empty stomach. They stayed in their rooms all afternoon, and the next time they saw the stranger, he was so beautiful they forgot all about their plans. When Jadine had clicked out of her bedroom in her gold-thread slippers, the man sat down in her chair and lit another cigarette. He listened to the 4-4 time of her clicking shoes, tapping it out on the little writing table. The seat was too small for him, like a grade school chair, even though he had lost the ship food weight, and now, after two weeks of scavenging, his body was as lean as a runner's. He glanced around him and was surprised at how uncomfortable-looking her room was. Not at all the way it appeared at dawn when he crouched there, watching her sleep and trying to change her dreams. Then it looked mysterious but welcoming. Now in the noon light it looked fragile, like a dollhouse for an absent doll, except for the sealskin coat sprawled on her bed, which looked more alive than seals themselves. He had seen them, gliding like shadows in water off the coast of Greenland, moving like supple rocks on pebbly shores, and never had they looked so alive as they did now that their insides were gone. Lambs, chickens, tuna, children. He had seen them all die by the ton. There was nothing like it in the world except the slaughter of whole families in their sleep, and he had seen that, too. 
He took another cigarette and walked to a table to look at the presents she'd started to wrap. Two damp spots formed on the yoke of his pajamas. Still smoking, he left off looking at the packages and walked into her bathroom. Peeping into the shower, he saw a fixture exactly like the one in the bathroom down the hall. But her shower had curtains, not sliding doors. Heavy, shiny curtains with pictures of old-fashioned ladies all over. Towel material was on the other side, still damp. Water glistened on the tub and wall tile. On the corner of the tub was a bottle of Neutrogena rain bath gel and a natural sponge, the same color as her skin. He picked up the sponge and squeezed it. Water gushed from the cavities. Careless, he thought. She should wring it out thoroughly, otherwise it would rot. The sponge was so large, he wondered how her small hands held it. He squeezed it again, but lightly this time, loving the juice it gave him. Unbuttoning his pajama top, he rubbed it on his chest and under his arms. Then he took the pajamas off altogether and stepped into the shower. Pull, she had said. Tepid water hit him full in the face. He pushed the knob in and the water stopped. He adjusted the shower head, pulled again, and water peppered his chest. After a moment, he noticed that the shower head was removable, and he lifted it from its clamps to let it play all over his skin. He never let go the sponge. When he was wet all over, he let the shower head dangle while he picked up the bath gel pumping the spout above the sponge. He lathered himself generously and rinsed. The water that ran into the drain was dark, charcoal gray, as black as the sea before sunrise. His feet were impossible. A thick crust scalloped his heels and the balls of both feet. His fingernails were long and caked with dirt. He lathered and rinsed twice before he felt as though he'd accomplished anything. The sponge felt good. He had never used one before. Always he had bathed with his own hands. Now he pumped a dollop of bath gel into his palm and soaped his beard, massaging as best he could with his nails. The beard hair tangled and crackled like lightning. He turned his soapy face up and sprayed water on it. Too hard. He stopped wiped his eyes and fiddled with the head until he got mist instead of buckshot. He soaped his face again and misted the lather away. Some of it got into his mouth and reminded him of a flavor he could not name. He sprayed more and swallowed it. It did not taste like water. It tasted like milk. He squirted it all around in his mouth before pressing the button to shut off the water. He got out dripping and looking around for shampoo. He was about to give up, not seeing any medicine cabinets, when he accidentally touched a mirror that gave way to reveal shelf upon shelf of bottles, among which were several of shampoo, boasting placenta protein among their ingredients. The man chose one and stood before the mirror looking at his hair. It spread like layer upon layer of wings from his head, more alive than the sealskin. It made him doubt that hair was, in fact, dead cells. 
black people's hair in any case, was definitely alive. Left alone and untended, it was like foliage, and from a distance, it looked like nothing less than the crown of a deciduous tree. He knew perfectly well what it was that had frightened her, paralyzed her for a moment. He could still see those minky eyes frozen wide in the mirror. Now he stuck his head under the shower and wet the hair till it fell like a pelt over his ears and temples. Then he soaked and rinsed, soaked and rinsed until it was as metallic and springy as new wire. After he dried it, he found a toothbrush and brushed his teeth furiously. Rinsing his mouth, he noticed blood. He was bleeding from the gums of his perfect teeth. He unscrewed the cap from a bottle of Listerine with instructions in French on the label and gargled. Finally, he wrapped a white towel around his waist. He noticed another door in the bathroom and opened it with the easy familiarity of someone who has been there before. It led to a dressing room within an alcove in which stood a table and a mirror circled by lights. Farther along were dresses, shelves of shoe boxes, luggage, and a narrow lingerie chest. On a tiny chair lay shorts and a white tennis visor. The smell of perfume nauseated him. He had not eaten since the gobbling of cold souffle and peaches the night before. He picked a robe, returned to the bathroom, and urinated. Then he stooped to pick up the pajamas, damp and bunched on the floor, but changed his mind, left them there, and walked back through the bedroom. The breeze from the open window was sweet, and he went to it and stood looking out. They are frightened, he thought. All but the old man. The old man knows that whatever I jumped ship for, it wasn't because I wanted to rape a woman. Women were not on his mind, and however strange it looked, he had not followed the women. He didn't even see them properly. When the boat docked, he stayed in the closet. Their voices were as light as their feet pattering on the dock, and when he went, at last, to look, all he saw were two slim-backed women floating behind the beam of a flashlight toward what looked like a jeep. They got in, turned on the lights, then the engine, in that order, just like women would, and were gone. It amused him that these tiny women had handled that big boat. Which one had thrown the rope? Who jumped onto the dock and secured the line? He had not seen them clearly at all, just the hand and left side of one as she picked a bottle off the deck, and now their slim backs disappearing into the darkness toward a jeep. He had not followed them. He didn't even know where they were off to. He waited until the sea, the fish, the waves all shut up, and the only sound came from the island. When he had eaten mustard, flatbread, and the last of the bottled water, he too disembarked, but not before he looked up at the sky, holy with stars, and inhaled the land smell sailors always swear they love. Behind him to his right, the dim lights of Queen of France. Before him, a dark shore. Ahead, under the stars and above the black of the beach, he could barely see the hilly outline of the island against the sky. He walked along the dock, 
and then over 40 feet of sand past the shadow of something that looked like a gasoline pump to the road the jeep had taken. He stayed on it and hoped he wouldn't meet anybody, for, having lost his shoes, he was not willing to cut through the bush, fat and tangled by the side of the road. At every step, clouds of mosquitoes surrounded him, biting through his shirt and on the back of his neck. An old dread of mines chilled him, stopped him dead, and he had to remind himself several times that this was the Caribbean. There were no beautiful pygmies in the trees or spring mines in the road. He had not followed the women. He didn't even know what they looked like or where they were going. He just walked for an hour on the only road there was and saw nothing to make him stop, nothing that appeared to offer rest. At some point during that hour, a foul smell rose about him. But the mosquitoes left him, and he supposed it was the fumes coming from a marsh or swamp that he imagined he was passing through. When he emerged from it, he saw above him a house with lights in its upper and lower stories. He stopped and rested one hand against a tree. How cool and civilized the house looked. After that hot, solitary walk through darkness, lined by trees muttering in their sleep, how cool, clean, and civilized it looked. They are drinking clear water in there, he thought, with ice cubes in it. He should have stayed on the boat for the night, but he'd been shipbound so long, and the land smell was so good, so good. I'd better go back, he told himself back to the boat where there is a refrigerator and ice cubes and a bunk. He drew his tongue across his lips and felt the cracks. Moving his hand an inch or two up the tree in preparation to go, his fingers grazed a breast, the tight-to-breaking breast of a pubescent girl three months pregnant. He snatched his hand away and turned to look. Then he let his breath out in a snort that was more relief than laughter. An avocado was hanging from the tree right at his fingertips and near his cheek. He parted the leaves and stroked it. Saved, he thought. It smelled like an avocado, felt like an avocado. But suppose it wasn't. Suppose it was a variety of a key, the fruit that contained both a pulp that was edible and a poison that killed. No, he thought, a key trees are bigger, taller, and their fruit would not grow so close to the trunk. He strained to see the color, but could not. He decided not to chance it and looked again at the house lights, the home lights, beaming like a safe port in front of him. Just then the wind, or perhaps it was the tree herself, lifted the leaves and, precisely as he had done a moment ago, parted wide the leaves. The avocado swung forward and touched his cheek. Why not, he thought, and placed three fingers on either side of the fruit and bit it where it hung. Under the tough, bitter skin was the completely tasteless, wholly satisfying meat, and it made him thirstier than he was before. He had not followed the women. He had not even seen them clearly, only their slim backs— what he went toward the house for was a drink of water, to find an outside spigot, a well, a fountain, anything to quench a thirst brought on by mosquitoes, the hot night, 
and the meat of a teenaged avocado. He approached the house from its northern side, away from the gravel of the driveway and over where the grass was wet and silky under his feet. Through the first window he looked into, he saw not the women, for he was not following the women, but the piano. Nothing like Miss Tyler's, but still a piano. It made him tired, weak and tired, as though he had swum seven seas for seven years only to arrive at the place he had started from. Thirsty, barefoot, and alone. No water, no shipboard bunk, no ice cubes could fight the fatigue that overwhelmed him at the sight of the piano. He backed away, away from the light and the window into the protection of the trees that were still muttering in their sleep. He would have sunk where he stood and slept under the dreaming trees and the holy sky, except for the part of him that never slept, and which told him now what it always told him, to hide, to look for cover. So he obeyed the self that never blinked or yawned and moved farther from the house looking for anything, a hutch, a tool shed, a cloister of shrubbery, and found a gazebo. He crawled under the circular bench where he could sleep safely. But sleep did not join him there at once. What came, what entered the gazebo, what floated through the screen were the boys who laughed at first when he used to go to Miss Tyler's and teased him about fucking Andrew's auntie when all he was doing was playing her piano because there wasn't another one in town except behind the altars of the AME Zion and Good Shepherd Baptist Church. Two churches for fewer than 300 people. Drake, Soldier, and Ernie Paul laughed and pointed their fingers. How it feel? Is she good? But he went anyway because she let him and because nothing else mattered. And after a while, she said she would give him lessons if he would weed for her. And a year later, Drake, Soldier, and Ernie Paul weren't laughing. They were sitting on Miss Tyler's porch steps listening and waiting for him to come out. Cheyenne, too, listened while he played and waited out front for him. But that was much later, and thank God she did not come into the gazebo with Drake, Soldier, and Ernie Paul. They kept him up all night, practically, so he thought they were probably alive somewhere. Each of them had been afraid for something different, his balls, eyes, spine. He had been afraid for his hands. All through the war, he thought of sitting in a dark and smoky joint, a small place that couldn't pack a hundred and could make it with a steady crowd of thirty, and him hidden behind the piano, surrounded and protected by the bass, the drum, the brass, taking eight once in a while, but mostly letting his hands get to the crowd softly, pleasantly. His hands would be doing something nice and human for a change. After he was busted, discharged without honor or humor, he had done it, but so badly only the pity of the owner and the absence of a rival kept him there, playing at night while Cheyenne slept at home, waiting. He had not followed the women. He came to get a drink of water, tarried to bite an avocado, stayed because of the piano, slept all through the next day because Drake, Soldier, and Ernie Paul kept him awake in the night. That's how he came to sleep in the day and wander the property at night, 
contrary to common sense and all notions of self-preservation. And he stayed tired. Even at night, when he walked around looking for food and trying to think of what his next step should be, to go back to the boat and wait for one of them to sail it again, to examine the island and maybe find a rowboat, something anonymous, and make it to town at night, get a little work, enough to fly to Miami and then work his way back home, to knock on the door, ask for help, and take the risk of being turned in. Each possibility seemed fine, and each seemed stupid. But he was so tired in the day and so hungry at night, nothing was clear for days on end. Then he woke up, in a manner of speaking. The first night he entered the house was by accident. The broken pantry window, where he was accustomed to look for food and bottled water, was boarded up. He tried the door and found it unlocked. He walked in. There in the moonlight was a basket of pineapples, one of which he rammed into his shirt mindless of its prickers. He listened a moment before opening the refrigerator door a crack. Its light cut into the kitchen like a wand. He shielded the opening as best he could while he reached inside. Three chicken wings were wrapped in wax paper. He took them all and closed the door. The silence was startling compared to the noisy night outside. He pushed the swinging doors and looked into a moonlit room with a big table in the middle and a chandelier overhead. It led to a hall which he entered and which led to the front door which he opened and he stepped back outside. The chicken was incredible. He hadn't tasted flesh since the day he went crazy with homesickness and jumped into the sea. He ate the bones even, and had to restrain himself from going right back and raiding the refrigerator again. Later. Wait till tomorrow night, he told himself. And he did. Each tomorrow night he entered the house and it was a week before he ventured upstairs, and then it was out of curiosity as well as a sense of familiarity. The door of the first bedroom at the head of the stairs was open, the room itself empty. The one to the left was not empty. A woman was sleeping in it. He meant to look, but not to watch, and not to stay because he had not followed the women, had not even seen them clearly. So the first time he entered her room, he stayed only a few seconds, watching her sleep. Anybody could have told him it was only the beginning. Considering the piano and Cheyenne and this sleeping woman, he was bound to extend his stay until he was literally spending the night with her, gratified beyond belief to be sitting on the floor, his back against the wall, his shirt full of fruit and meat if he could find any in the company of a woman asleep. His appetite for her so gargantuan it lost its focus and spread to his eyes, the oranges in his shirt, the curtains, the moonlight, spread to everything, everywhere around her, and let her be. He spent some part of every night with her and grew to know the house well, for he sneaked out just before dawn when the kitchen came alive. And he had to admit now, standing in the sunlight, that he had liked living in the house that way. It became his, sort of, a nighttime possession complete with a beautiful sleeping woman. 
Little by little he learned the people, and little by little he forgot that he had not followed the women. He thought he had. Only now did he remember that it was the avocado, the thirst, the piano. And now here he was with the immediate plans of a newborn baby. He didn't like to think too far in advance anyway, but he supposed he'd have to think up a story to tell them about who he was and what his name was. Oh, he had been alone so long, hiding and running so long. In eight years, he'd had seven documented identities, and before that, a few undocumented ones, so he barely remembered his real original name himself. Actually, the name most truly his wasn't on any of the social security cards, union dues cards, discharge papers. And everybody who knew it or remembered it in connection with him could very well be dead. Son. It was the name that called forth the true him. The him that he never lied to. The one he tucked in at night and the one he did not want to die. The other selves were like the words he spoke. Fabrications of the moment. Misinformation required to protect Sun from harm and to secure that one reality at least. Through the window on the ground below, he saw the back of a man stooping at some cutting or digging chore. It was the black man he had seen off and on around the grounds. He stared at his back. Yard man, she called him. That was yard man's back. He knew backs studied them because backs told it all. Not eyes, not hands, not mouths either, but backs because they were simply there, all open, unprotected and unmanipulable as Yardman's was, stretched like a smokehouse cot where hobos could spend the night. A back where the pain of every canker, every pinched neck nerve, every toothache, every missed train home, empty mailbox, closed bus depot, do not disturb, and this seat taken sign since God made water came to rest. He watched the angle of the old man's spine, and for no reason that he could think of, tears stung his eyes. It astonished him, those unshed tears, for he knew well the area into which his heart was careening, an area as familiar as the knuckle of his thumb. Not the street of yellow houses with white doors, but the wide lawn places where little boys in Easter white shorts played tennis under their very own sun. A sun whose sole purpose was to light their way, golden their hair, and reflect the perfection of their Easter white shorts. He had fingered that image hundreds of times before, and it had never produced tears. But now, watching Yardman, he was kneeling, chopping at the trunk of a small tree, while he himself was so spanking clean, clean from the roots of his hair to the crevices between his toes, having watched his personal dirt swirl down a drain, while he himself stood wrapped waist to thigh in an Easter white towel. Now he was as near to crying as he'd been since he'd fled from home. You would have thought something was leaving him, and all he could see was its back. Slowly, Yardman stood. He turned around toward the house and for less than a pulse beat glanced at the trees that grew at the edge of the courtyard. Then he lifted his cap, 
scratched his head with his ring and little finger, and pulled the cap back on. Thanks, whispered son. One more second of your smokehouse cot might have brought me there at last. While Margaret had been lying in her sculptured bedroom, fighting hunger, anger, and fear, Valerian was in his greenhouse, staring out of the one glass window, imagining what was not so. That the woman in the wash house was bending over a scrub board rubbing pillow slips with a bar of orange octagon soap. He knew perfectly well that a washer and dryer were installed there. He couldn't hear the hum, for the music and the drone of the air conditioner in the greenhouse obliterated it, but he could see the steam puffing from the exhaust pipe. But the scrub board, the pillow slips, and the orange soap were major parts of what he wished to see the backyard of the house of his childhood in Philadelphia, the hydrangea, fat and brown in the September heat, his father, knocked down by a horse-drawn milk truck, lay in bed, the house already funereal. Valerian went out back to the shed where a washerwoman did the family's laundry. She was thin, toothless, and looked like a bird. Valerian sometimes visited her, or rather hung around her shed, asking questions and chattering. She was like a pet who would listen agreeably to him and not judge or give orders. The first time he came, she had said, by way of polite conversation, the pointless conversation of an adult without stature to a child who had some. What's your daddy doing today? And he had answered that his daddy was away on a sales trip to Atlantic City. From then on, she greeted him that way. He would wander to the shed door, and she would ask, What's your daddy doing today? And he would tell her, as a preliminary to the conversation, He's at the factory today, or he's in New York today. It was a delightful opener to him because she and his father had never laid eyes on each other. A sort of grown-up conversation followed the question that they both took seriously. On one of the Wednesdays she came to work, his father died without regaining consciousness. Valerian was fussed over by his mother and relatives and then left alone while they busied themselves with death arrangements. He wandered out to the wash house that afternoon, and when the woman said, Hi, what's your daddy doing today? Valerian answered, He's dead today, as though tomorrow he would be something else. The woman looked up at him and paused for an awkward silence in which he suddenly understood the awfulness of what had happened and that his father would also be dead the next day and the day after that as well. In that instant, while the bird-like colored woman looked at him, he knew limitlessness, the infinity of days in which the answer to her question would be the same. He's dead today, and each day it would be so. It was too big, too deep, a bottomless bucket of time into which his little boy legs were sinking and his little boy hands were floundering. Finally, she blinked and pointed to a shelf behind him. Hand me that soap, she said, and he did. Now unwrap it and stand right over here, up close, closer. He did that too and she made him rub soap on the wet pillowcase that clung to the washboard. He scrubbed his heart out, 
crying all the while, pillowcase after pillowcase, rubbed and rubbed until his knuckles were cherry red and his arms limp with fatigue. And when he could not do another, she patted him on the head and said she would hire him any day. Later, George, the butler they had before Sidney, found out about it. He had wondered about those cherry red knuckles and told him to stay out of there because that woman drank like a fish and he mustn't let her use him to do her work. Valerian told him to mind his own beeswax, but they let the woman go, and Valerian never again had to say, he's dead today. But he said it anyway, to himself, until his little boy legs were strong enough to tread the black water in the bucket that had no bottom. So, inconvenient as it was, he had insisted on a separate wash house when he built L'Arbre de la Croix, less for an island touch than for the remembrance of having once done something difficult and important while the world was zooming away from him. Now another washerwoman came. It wasn't quite the same. No octagon soap, no wavy gleaming washboard, but he liked looking at it through his greenhouse window, knowing there was a woman in there doing something difficult but useful in peace. A soothing thought to concentrate on while his own house was prickly with tension and unanswered questions. He had rattled last night to Jade, and why he had ascribed his exile to the Caribbean, to the relationship between Margaret and Michael, he couldn't imagine. The fact was he'd become a stranger in his own city and chose not to spend his retirement there at exactly 65, or close to, in order to avoid watching it grow away from him. Sidewalks and thoroughfares were populated by people he did not know. Shops were run by keepers who did not know him. Familiar houses were bought by bright couples who either updated them or returned them to some era that existed only in their minds. They tore out unfashionable shrubbery for decks and patios. They closed in the wide open porches and enlarged windows that had been tiny, private, and sweet. These new people privatized their houses by turning them backward, away from the street, but publicized their lives and talked about wine as though it were a theology instead of a drink. The unending problem of growing old was not how he changed, but how things did. A condition bearable only so long as there were others like him to share that knowledge. But his wife, 22 years younger and from another place, did not remember and his friends were dead and dying. In his heart, he was still the 39-year-old Temple alumnus working in the candy factory, about to assume from his uncle's control of the company, and who had married a high school beauty queen he was determined to love in order to prove he was capable of it to his first wife, that unlovable shrew who was unlovable to this very day. She had died a year before his retirement in South Carolina, where she had gone to live with her sister. When he heard about it, she was already in the ground. He began to miss her at precisely that point, terribly. And when he settled in the Caribbean, she must have missed him too, for she started visiting him in the greenhouse with the regularity of a passionate mistress. Funny. He couldn't remember her eyes, but when she came, flitting around his chair and gliding over his seed flats, he recognized her at once. In nine years of marriage, she had had two abortions, and all she wanted to talk about during these visits 
was how relieved she was that she'd had at least that foresight. He wished she'd felt something else. You'd think in death, in the beyond, she would have felt something else, or nothing at all. He was not alarmed by her visits. He knew he conjured them up himself, just as he conjured up old friends and childhood playmates who were clearer to him now than the last thirty years were, and nicer. But he was astonished to see, unconjured, his only living son in the dining room last night. Probably the consequence of describing the sink business to Jade. Michael seemed to be smiling at him last night, but not the smile of derision he usually had in the flesh. This was a smile of reconciliation. And Valerian believed that was part of the reason he invited the black man to have a seat, the forepresence of Michael in the dining room. His face, smiling at him from the bowl of peaches, was both the winsome two-year-old under the sink and the thirty-year-old socialist. The face in the peaches compelled him to dismiss Margaret's screaming entrance as the tantrum of a spoiled child, the deliberate creation of a scene which both father and son understood as feminine dementia. Michael had been on his heart, if not in his mind, since Margaret had announced the certainty of his visit. He could not say to her that he hoped far more than she did that Michael would come, that maybe this time there would be that feeling of rescue between them as it had been when he had taken him from underneath the sink. Thus, when the black man appeared, Valerian was already in complicity with an overripe peach and took on its implicit dare, and he invited the intruder to have a drink. The Michael of the reservation and the Michael of the sink was both surprised and pleased. It was easy not to believe in Margaret's hysteria. He had seen examples of it many times before and thought she was up to her old combo of masochism plus narcissism that he believed common to exceptionally beautiful women. But when, in a flash too speedy for reflex, he saw his entire household standing there, and in each of their faces disgust and horror, and altogether triumphant, and altogether anticipating his command, already acting on it, in fact, just waiting for the signal from him to call the harbor police and thereby make him acknowledge his mistake in not taking Margaret seriously, having to admit that he was not capable of judgment in a crisis, that he was wrong, that she was right, that his house had been violated and he neither knew it or believed it when it was discovered, and it had been Sidney who had the foresight to have a gun and the legs to ferret out the intruder. When he saw Margaret's triumphant face, Jade's frightened one, and Sidney and Undine looking at the prisoner with faces as black as his, but smug, their manner struck him as what Michael meant when he said, bourgeois, in that tone that Valerian always thought meant unexciting, but now he thought meant false but last night, he thought, meant Uncle Tomish. He had defended his servants vigorously to Michael then, with aphorisms about loyalty and decency, and with shouts that the press was ruining with typical carelessness the concept of honor for a people who had a hard enough time achieving any. What he had said to Jade, he believed, that Michael was a purveyor of exotics, a typical anthropologist, a cultural orphan, who sought other cultures he could love without risk or pain. Valerian hated them, 
not from any hatred of the minority or alien culture, but because of what he saw to be the falseness and fraudulence of the anthropological position. The Indian problem, he told Michael, was between Indians, their conscience and their own daring do. And all of his loving treks from ghetto to reservation to barrio to migrant farm were searches for people in whose company the Michaels could enjoy the sorrow they were embarrassed to feel for themselves. And yet, in the space of that flash, he felt not only as Michael must have when he urged Jade to do something for her people, no matter how silly his instruction, but something more. Disappointment nudging contempt for the outrage Jade and Sidney and Andine exhibited in defending property and personnel that did not belong to them from a black man who was one of their own. As the evening progressed, Valerian thoroughly enjoyed the disarray that his invitation had thrown them into. Margaret ran from the room, foiled. Jade was at least sophisticated about it, but Sidney and Undine were wrecked while the intruder himself didn't even look caught. He walked in with his hands raised and clasped behind his head and looked neither right nor left, not at Jade or Undine or Margaret, but straight at Valerian, and in his eyes was neither a question nor a plea and no threat whatsoever. Valerian was not afraid then, and he was not afraid at noon the next day when Sidney tapped quietly on his door and brought his mail and his baked potato. Valerian could sense the small waiting in Sidney, some expectation or hope that his employer would give him a hint of what had been in his head last night. Valerian felt a twinge of compassion for him, but since he could not tell him about faces that looked up out of peaches, he said nothing at all. Actually, he had no plans. He was curious about the man, but not all that much. He assumed he was what he'd said he was, a crewman jumping ship, and his roaming about the house and grounds, hiding in Margaret's closet, was more outrageous than threatening. He had looked into the man's eyes and had no fear. Digesting his potato and sipping wine, he was rewarded for his serenity by an expansive howdy, followed by the entrance of the stranger wrapped in a woman's kimono, barefoot with gleaming wrought iron hair. Valerian let his eyes travel cautiously down from the hair to the robe to the naked feet. The man smiled broadly. He looked down at himself, back at Valerian, and said, But I don't do no windows. Valerian laughed shortly. Good morning, Mr. Sheik, said the man. Street. Valerian Street, said Valerian. What did you say your name was? Green. William Green. Well, good morning, Willie. Sleep well? Yes, sir. Best sleep I ever had. Your name really Valerian? Yes, Valerian shrugged helplessly and smiled. I used to eat a candy called Valerian's. Ours, said Valerian. Our candy company made them. No kidding? You named after a candy? The candy was named after me. I was named after an emperor. Oh, said the man looking around the greenhouse. Its sudden coldness was delicious after the heat outside. Shady and cool, 
with plants shooting from pots and boxes everywhere. It's so pretty in here, he said, still smiling. Tell me the truth, said Valerian, before you get confused by what you see. What were you really doing in my wife's bedroom? The man stopped smiling. The truth? He looked down at the brick walk in some embarrassment. The truth is I made a mistake. I thought it was the other one. What other one? The other bedroom. Jade's? Yes, sir. I, uh, thought I smelled oyster stew out back yesterday, and it got dark early, the fog, I mean. They done left the kitchen, and I thought I'd try to get me some, but before I knew it, I heard them coming back. I couldn't run out the back door, so I run through another one. It was a dining room. I ran upstairs into the first room I seen. When I got in, I seen it was a bedroom, but thought it belonged to the one y'all called Jade. I aimed to hide there till I could get out, but then I heard somebody coming and I ducked into the closet. I was just as scared as your wife was when she opened that door and turned that light on me. You've been skulking around here for days. Why didn't you ask at the kitchen for something to eat? Scared? I ain't got a passport, I told you. You going to turn me over to the police? Well, not in that get-up, certainly. Yeah, he glanced at his kimono again and laughed. They'd give me life. I don't reckon you have an old suit to lend me. Then I can go to jail in style. In one of my suits, they'd make you governor. I'll tell Sidney to find something for you. But don't be surprised if he bites your head off. Suddenly, the man jumped and stamped his feet on the bricks. What's the matter? Ants, he said. Oh, dear, you've let them in, and I'm out of thalamide. Valerian stood up. Over there, that can. Spray the door sill. It won't do much good, but it will help for a while, and tuck that muslin in tighter. The man did as he was told and then said, You ought to get mirrors. Mirrors for what? Put outside the door. They won't come near a mirror. Really? Yeah, he said, and sprayed some of the ant killer on his legs. His kimono came undone at the belt and fell away from his body. Valerian looked at his genitals and the skinny black thighs. You can't go round like that in front of the ladies. Leave that alone and go tell Sidney to give you some clothes. Tell him I said so. The man looked up, letting the kimono hang to his sides. You ain't gonna turn me in? I guess not. You didn't take anything, but we'll have to figure a way to get you some papers. Go on now, get some clothes. Valerian took the ant spray and set it down near a heavy plant of many shades of green. Its leaves spread out healthily, and long stems stood straight up among them, stems with closed buds. Valerian peered into the plant and frowned. What's the matter with it? asked the man. Looks sick. Valerian turned the pot around for a different view. I don't know. It's been in bud like that for I don't know how long. They won't open no matter what I do. Shake it, said the man. They just need jacking up. And he walked over to the cyclamen, and with thumb and middle finger flicked the stems hard as though they were naughty students. What the hell are you doing? 
Valerian reached out to grab the man's hand. Don't worry. They'll be in bloom tomorrow morning. If they are, I'll buy you a brand new suit. If they die, I'll have Sydney chase you back into the sea. Deal, said the man. I know all about plants. They like women. You have to jack them up every once in a while. Make them act nice like they're supposed to. He finished flicking the cyclamen stems and smiled first to himself and then at Valerian. Did you ever hear the one about the three colored whores who went to heaven? No, said Valerian. Tell me. And he did, and it was a good joke. Very funny, and when Jadine ran to the greenhouse, certain the noise coming from it was somebody murdering somebody, she heard laughter to beat the band. And that will do it for the first audio segment. Racist jokes. Hmm. Context of white supremacy. So we're still in chapter five. As I said at the beginning, this is a lengthy chapter that we will not complete today, uh, but we will, you know, make a good try. Uh, we'll pick up uh, the second audio segment. We'll begin uh, the paragraph. This is a good way. Uh, I guess kind of in the middle portion of chapter five, Sidney had put some of his boss's old clothes in the guest room for him. And Valerian sent him off with Gideon to get a haircut. That's where we're starting at. There's kind of a break uh, in that uh, between the paragraph where this one starts that I just read. If you have questions, thoughts, comments, the number to dial 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 605-313-5164. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, quickly... Uh, I was reading some of the different reviews and study guides that accompany uh, this text. And one thing that they talked about uh, was her very detailed uh, description of nature, particularly fruits, foods of the island, all of the detail about the avocado and the apples before and peaches and very descriptive uh, about the foods uh, that they're consuming or talking about the mangoes at the very beginning. Uh, what do we make of that? What is uh, Toni Morrison getting at? And even paying attention to the patterns in the foods that they want, the foods that they don't want, how they talk about uh, nature in general, uh, to be mindful of that. But just we had that bit about the avocado uh, today. What do folks make about these detailed descriptions uh, of the food, the prickliness of the pineapple? Uh, in addition to name calling, always a hoot. Uh, also, I think last week we were talking about uh, Therese. I think that's how you say it. Might might be wrong. Therese uh, and Gideon. Gideon is yard man. Uh, they, that was the first time that we got his actual name. He is just called yard man. But yard man, that is Gideon. Uh, so that one, I think we we did not exactly have that last week, but clean that up as I move forward. 
uh, I guess some of our other listeners as well can can chime in if they if they got that or if they had to read a little bit more to get that extra bit of uh, information. I believe Gideon is a biblical name, unless I am in error. Anywho, paying attention to the names. Uh, anywho, uh, and what do we make of our, our unnamed black male rapist accused? Uh, he says his authentic name would be Son. S-O-N, S-O-N, son. Uh, what do we make of that? We had to wait about a half of the, the book to get his his name, what he would call himself, even though he identifies himself as William Green uh, to Mr. Street. What do we make of his name, son, or himself identifying as son? Just a few bits to think about. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, star six one, number again, 605-313-5164, the code five six four. Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Uh, see, Mr. Dimry four, have your hand. We'll look for other folks with hands. Uh, nab them as I see them. If you have comments, proceed. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. <coughs> greetings, Gus, and greetings to the other callers and listeners. Um glad you helped clear that up about Gideon, Gideon and Therese. But, you know, I solved another mystery, I think. The two dark dogs with silver feet. I believe that that phrase comes up in a manner that may depict that J.D., that is J.D.'s libido that that is her sexual urge that she's having when she's having to hold back the rings or the leash on the two dog dogs with the silver feet. Now, I could be mistaken, but the uh, other readers would pay attention to that. They may uh, agree with me. Um, <clears throat> also, um, <laughs> The last part, the reason why um, I guess Jodine was going down to tell on her son, and by the way, I think that um, one of the reasons why he called himself son may have something to do with uh, him trying to hide his true identity, but he... He told Mr. Valerian Street his real name, but he still admitted, I think, <clears throat> to having aliases or some reason to not uh, tell the entire truth about who he is and where he's from. Uh, like in this book, we have to just sort of put the pieces together, and as the book goes along, it makes more sense. I believe there's <clears throat> some duality in the uh, representation of a civilian or, or civilization versus the wilderness. And I think we saw that when he was <clears throat> taking a shower in uh, Jadine's room, using all the fancy soap and the sponge, and wiping that uh, black 
dirt and uh, funk off of it. Uh, <clears throat> he hadn't seen that type of uh, products or use of that type of uh, sponge. And he kept saying that he didn't follow the women. I did not follow the women, but it's becoming pretty apparent that that's probably exactly what he did uh, because how else would he end up there? And I wanted to get on Valerian. He's having aberrations in his little greenhouse. He sees his ex-wife and when she appears she reminds him that the one thing that she's glad that she did was to abort his two children. And it's like he's haunting her, or she's haunting him. And he says even to this day she's dead, but uh, she's, uh, he was unable to love her for some of the things that she did. and. I believe that um, it's really ridiculous that Margaret is even asking Michael to come at Christmas time when she treated him like she did growing up. That guy's probably never coming, and he don't want to see those people again. Probably thinks his mom is crazy, which she is. I think the book calls it, uh, or identifies it as dementia, but <clears throat> she's evidently uh, out of touch with reality. It was interesting that uh, we were talking about Gideon and Therese. Uh, she, before I get to that, I want to talk about the part where um, he encountered the washwoman when he was growing up, okay? And she would ask him every day about uh, how, what was his father today? She was bird-like, toothless, colored woman. And out doing the laundry in a separate house, in the big house, and normally you would have your washer and dryer, whatever, in the house. But in this case, it's just, you know, that sort of that plantation type thing where if you're going to be doing the chores of the house, uh, they don't even want to encounter you. They don't want to see you. But the little boy went out and talked to her, and when he said that his father was dead that day, I think she tried to help him by having him do a little bit of the laundry. And the butler at the time was George, and he saw the little red knuckles of the little boy and told on the washwoman, which the whole idea about having a washhouse separate in the house has got its racist origins. But then uh, they fired the old lady for associating with the child. Maybe having to do a little bit of the work 
but that was sort of a healing uh, technique or process that she was trying to uh, teach the little boy something and end up getting fired behind it. And it's also a reference to east of white dresses, east of white shorts, east of white towel. I'm not sure about that, but um, let's see the oh, when he was looking at Peter's back and he started to get tears in his eyes and he thought about the little boys with golden hair and a son of their own shining on their hair. I didn't quite understand that and I tried to think about it. I could only think that maybe he felt when he was growing up, he wanted that type of life and he wasn't able to get it. And at this time, while he was sitting there in the big house clean and looking at Gideon, the yard man, uh, working, then he had a feeling of sort of, I guess, sympathy towards Gideon. Uh, oh, and I'd like to mention one thing. Uh, Valerian felt that Sidney, Odin, Ondine, and J.D.'s response to son being in the house was that their response was Uncle Tomish. <laughs> or if they were trying to protect property that wasn't their own, and he felt that that had a ring of Uncle Tom, and I wanted to mention it's just Probably a coincidence, but I had listened to thus uh, your interview with um, Black Talk Radio host, uh, and you, he interviewed you on the topic of Uncle Tom. And you know, I'm under this uh, of, of the same impression. Uh, I finally understand what Mr. Fuller meant when he said when he goes Uncle Tom hunting. The first place you look is in the mirror because you have to think about your contributions to white supremacy and what your response was it uh, at any time. And a lot of times our response um, was in support of white supremacy and probably didn't have a choice. But I'll meet my line on that, Gus. Thanks for taking the call. Much obliged, uh, Mr. Demry Four did have some some name calling one of the more popular activities uh, on the plantation that is the system of white supremacy, something we have talked about for a long time. Uh, and particularly in this book to have a white man, Valerian Street, because uh, that does happen uh, quite a bit to have someone classified as white look at a black person, a non-white, well, generally it's a black, I was going to say non-white, but it's generally a black person. That uh, term Uncle Tom is generally reserved almost exclusively for people classified as black. Uh, so sometimes you will see a white person say, oh yeah, 
He's behaving like an Uncle Tom. I've heard uh, a white person refer to uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas uh, as an Uncle Tom repeatedly, uh, which just further, you know, what what do we mean when we say Uncle Tom? Mm. Star 6-1 for other folks, if you have thoughts, comments, questions uh, on the text, I'll share a few of my notes. And uh, actually, the second audio segment is a little lengthy. As I said, this chapter is long, so uh, we'll probably get started a little earlier than we normally would just because chapter five is enormous. Uh, So some of the things that I took note of. So Jadine and Margaret. They begin chapter five. They're having this conversation like, you know, oh my gosh, Valerian is out giggling with this nigra. Can you believe it? Margaret, white woman, she says, uh, you don't know him, do you? That right there, you niggers, you all got to be friends, cousins, homies. You've been hanging out with him. Assume that you might know him. This should sound familiar to, you know, a number of victims of racism. Uh, let's see. I thought it was interesting as well. Margaret, she says all night I waited for that bastard Valerian to come up here and tell me what the hell was going on. He never showed. The numbers of individual black people that have been uh, lynched, castrated, just August 28th just passed. Uh, the It's been over 60 years since the lynching and castration of Emmett Till. Uh, the number of black people in entire black towns uh, that have been destroyed uh, for an accusation that you looked at a white woman too long. You have an actual Negro who is trespassing and in a white woman's closet and her white husband doesn't even come to check on her. <laughs> like, wow. In total dereliction of his duty. And he had said that, hey, I married this white woman, Margaret, to show that I could love her. And this is his demonstration, particularly later on when you get his some of his explanation as to why he allowed this black guy to hang out in the house. Son, uh, continuing with Margaret and Jade's conversation, she says. Uh, Margaret's talking, she's, you know, he did this on purpose, you know, he knows Michael, our son is coming home and he just wanted to mess everything up. So I can't enjoy our son's visit uh, instead of throwing that. That. And Jade fills it in, nigger. Because that's what she had called him. She had had other black people uh, throughout the text who've, who've used the exact same language. We talked about that last week uh, to describe him. That is the brain trashing, the conditioning of white supremacy. All of us have been subjected to it. She says, nigger. Yes, nigger. That's what I, exactly. You're a nigger. He's a nigger. You all know each other. Uh, and they continue. And it said, Jadine's neck prickled at the description and this is after Margaret, she's called him a nigger, and then she calls him a gorilla. J.D.'s neck prickled at the description. She had volunteered nigger, but not gorilla, even though she had called him an ape before. Uh, when he grabbed or when he made the comment, asked her if she had to have sex uh, or suck someone's penis to advance in her career. And they had their uh, dispute. She called him all kinds of names, uh, called him an ape uh, and what have you. Uh, this is... Uh, she, you know, I guess felt some type of way about Margaret calling him an ape. Gorilla, excuse me. Uh, let's see. Next. I thought uh, Mr. Demi Four's uh, assessment, uh, I thought that was pretty shrewd. Him saying that there's there's so much talk as though son, the black male is trying to convince himself that he did not uh, follow 
uh, these ladies to the residents, uh, even though he says, hey, it, it seems that way, uh, particularly when you uh, reflect back on some of those scenes where he's looking in on Jade's room and admiring her and talking about wondering what she's dreaming about that certainly would seem like uh, there was an allure, some sort of attraction uh, pulling him towards uh, Jade's residence or her room specifically. Uh, let's see. Next. Yes, that's why I said there's, uh, in, if you look at some of the literary reviews of this book, they pay a close attention to Morrison's description of nature and the environment that these characters are in, especially the fruits, vegetables uh, that they're describing as uh, the mangoes, the apples, all of that. The scene about the avocado uh, where he says uh, he snatched his hand away and turned to look then he let his breath out in a sort in a snort that was more relief than laughter an avocado was hanging from the tree right at his fingertips and near his cheek he parted the leaves and stroked it saved he thought it smelled like an avocado felt like an avocado but suppose it wasn't suppose it was a variety of a key i think that's how you say that a key the fruit had contained both a pulp that was edible and a poisoned and a poison that killed and then he goes on to talk about the difference and he ultimately bites the uh, avocado. But I thought, hmm, what? Because, I mean, that's quite a bit of uh, detail and to go into the difference between these different types of fruits uh, and the danger of him being out there and trying to figure out something. We've had a lot of these scenes already of him trying to find uh, something to eat when he was back on the boat uh, and just kind of having scraps uh, of different things. Lots of lots of scenes and dialect even about what they're going to eat preparation for the meals the book started off and they had all this talk about what's going to be on the menu and you need to tell Andine the night before what you want to eat if you don't want mangoes what do you want and explain all of that lots and lots of detail uh, about what people are going to eat uh, and the fruits and veggies what do we think about that what is Morrison doing and again we can pay attention to that pattern as the book continues uh, next This is still son speaking. He says, I didn't like to think too far in advance anyway. That's victims of racism. Keeping us on the run. That would be son's character. Victims of white supremacy, not able to be stable in one spot. He says he has all these different identities. He's a stowaway from the beginning. On the move. Exactly as Mr. Fuller says. Not able to think far in advance to plan things strategically. Uh, he says, but suppose, but he supposed he'd have to think up a story to tell them about who he was and what his name was. Oh, he had been alone so long, keeping victims isolated, hiding and running so long in eight years, he had seven documented identities and before that, a few undocumented ones. So he barely remembered his real original name himself. Boy, does that remind me of a book we read, Invisible Man. Get a new name, new papers all along the way in your journey. You don't even remember 
who you are uh, originally. I think our protagonist, who also didn't have a name, I can't believe it took this long to get a reference to Invisible Man, where we have an unnamed black male character on uh, a book that we read before. Uh, let's see. Yeah, folks can think about Sun. I already said that. You know, what, what we think about him choosing the name Sun for himself. Uh, let's see. Mr. Demi Four uh, already mentioned uh, the portion uh, about Valerian, him kind of flashing back to his childhood and his interaction with this black female uh, washwoman. I thought Mr. Demi Four had a uh, great analysis of that uh, scene. Again, showing the brain trashing. I don't think George is uh, an Uncle Tom. That's what he's been trained to do. That is the product of terrorism. We are supposed to connect with this young uh, racist child, Valerian. Oh my goodness. This nigga has got him washing clothes. He is a young white king. He's not supposed to be out here washing laundry. Get her out or not. He's not the one that does the hiring and firing, but he can go. And I think this would be accurately described as snitching. He can go snitch to a white person. And then the white person, they'll do the firing. Uh, and maybe they reward George. Maybe they don't. Uh, let's see. Cherry red knuckles, even uh, fruit referenced again there. Uh, let's see. I thought it was interesting in 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 uh, concluding this whole, I guess, flashback scene. Uh, it says George the Butler they had before Sydney found out about it and told him to stay out of there because the woman drank like a fish. Sobriety would be best. And he mustn't let her use him to do her work. Valerian told him, mind his own beeswax. But they let the woman go and Valerian never again had to say he's dead today. But he said it anyway to himself until his little boy legs were strong enough to tread the black water in the bucket that had no bottom. Referencing the death of uh, his father. Uh, let's see. Aww. I thought it was significant when son gives his name to Mr. Street. He says, William Green. Mr. Street doesn't call him William or even Mr. Green. He calls him Willie. We've talked about that quite a bit on workplace racism, nicknames, white people not calling us by our exact titles, often deliberately so. And Willie would generally be like the child form, like you generally do not call uh, a grown person, like people generally don't call uh, former president uh, William H. Clinton. They generally don't call him Willie unless they're being disparaging. Bill, maybe not Willie. That generally would be something reserved for a child or someone of lower standing. Generally. Uh, but the comment uh, where Valerian uh, is referring to another black person as an Uncle Tom, specifically his staff, uh, and how they respond to Son being found. And they're like, oh my goodness, this, you know, this nigger is, is hiding out in the residence. And isn't Mr. Street going to call the harbor police? And what's going on here? We've got this raping nigger in the house. Uh, and he says, uh, make sure I can read it in its entirety. Uh, uh, okay. 
When he saw Margaret's triumphant face, Jade's frightened one, and Sidney and Undine looked at the prisoner with faces as black as his, but smug, their manner struck him as what Michael meant when he said bourgeois in that tone that Valerian always thought meant unexciting, but now he thought meant false, but last night he thought meant Uncle Tomish. He had defended his servants vigorously to Michael then with aphorisms about loyalty and decency and with shouts that the press was ruining the typical carelessness, the concept of honor for people who had a hard enough time achieving any. Hmm. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Uh, I don't use the term uh, bourgeois, but white people condition and train us in a variety of different ways to look down on other black people. It could be for a variety of reasons because uh, they're darker or they're lighter or because of their hair or because they have these clothes or because they eat this food or because they live on uh, this side of town for a variety of reasons or no reason at all. And they have been very successful at convincing us to be in conflict and to be hostile uh, with other black people, any and all other black people, and then to sit around and, oh, Gosh, I can't believe the way that they talk about and treat other Negroes. I can't believe this. That they have been successful. That the audacity. Oh, you old Uncle Tom Bushwa Negroes, you sicken me with your racist man, racist woman. Uh, I also thought it was significant, uh, Mr. Street describing his wife, Margaret, uh, as being uh, full of narcissism and masochism in her response to this black male son being in her residence and a part of why he allowed him to stay is that he didn't want to appear wrong. He didn't want her to be right. And he was wrong that his house was in danger. His house had been violated. You got some nigra uh, staying in the residence and she says your white wife says so. And you don't even believe her. You don't even act on it. It turns out that she's right, that he didn't want to have that. So we'll let him stay. I'm right. It's no problem. She was still wrong. It wasn't a, a danger or a threat. We just got a harmless lurking Negro who will invite to stay for a drink. I thought that was important as well. And in fact, his response seemed more reminiscent of narcissistic behavior, nice narcissistic uh, pathology than hers, that I, I have to be right about things I cannot stand uh, to be shown up or to be shown proven to be infallible publicly in front of all these people, Negroes and everybody like, oh, no, we can't have that happen at all. Unless my maybe my interpretation is off. Uh, other folks who uh, dialed in number again, six zero five three one three five one six four. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, if you have thoughts on any of the questions that have been presented or any questions, uh, proceed. Let's see. We got Henry in Chicago should be with us. Good to hear from you, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings to uh, all the callers and listeners. <clears throat> In the beginning of Chapter 5, uh, during the conversation between Margaret and uh, Jadine, uh, they, were, they were talking about the uh, son, and uh, Jadine was disclosing some of the conversation she had with, uh, with son, and there was, a, uh, there was uh, Margaret who was wondering if... Uh, uh, he was wondering if uh, she was wondering if he was coming there to rape her. And Jade's response was, uh, I don't mean he came to rape you. But then 
in her mind, she said, maybe me, uh, me, maybe she thought, but not you. And I was wondering why she thought that I was, and that's kind of like a question I want to throw, uh, throw out there. Because uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure that one out. Uh, I agree with you, Gus. Uh, when she was call, uh, when she kind of drew back when Margaret called uh, uh, son a gorilla, uh, that was interesting because uh, early in the story she was calling him, you know, uh, she was calling him a gorilla and, and everything. So that was that was kind of an interesting twist there uh, uh, with that. Uh, when they were going over son's life, I guess, uh, or the, 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 the events that happened before, uh, he appeared on the Island. Um, it kind of reminds me, uh, son is kind of like a representative of, and I think this was said before, he's kind of like a runaway slave. Um, and he's basically a, a guy with no past, uh, doesn't even know his name. Uh, kind of, kind of reminds, uh, kind of reminds us of black people here in this in this country where uh, we were uh, enslaved and our past has been ripped away from us. White people have taken everything away from us, and we don't even, you know, uh, our names are not our names anymore. So, uh, something kind of resembled that uh, journey that uh, how we got here. Uh, uh, enslaved uh, under the system of white supremacy. Uh, so yeah, the the past has been taken from us by white people. The uh, the part where Sun was looking at a yard man, or I think you I think you said it was Gideon, uh, looking at his back. Um, there was a lot of in that little section uh, where he was looking at his back. There. A lot of religious metaphors, a lot of religious symbolism. He uses, uh, she uses words like God, and Easter, uh, uh, and kneeling uh, within that little uh, snippet of, of describing Yardman's back. Uh, and uh, she, she kind of uses uh, religious metaphors uh, throughout the story uh, as well. I think she used theology uh, on page 142 as well. Uh, what else here? Um, when, when, uh, when, uh, Valerian was, uh, with the woman, uh, that was, uh, asked, that was constantly asking her about her father. Uh, what was interesting was the, uh, the part where, uh, she described she was like a pet who would listen agreeably to him and not judge or give orders. And, you know, it's so, you know, common for white people to basically kind of treat us like pets. Uh, for those who are confused, who want to, you know, latch on to, uh, you know, white people, because I guess they sort of had some kind of connection with them every time he asked about uh, her father, you know, her father. Uh, what else here? Oh, uh, important, uh, another topic of another, uh, another, uh, thing of loneliness here on page 142, where, uh, they were talking about, uh, Valerian becoming a stranger in his own city and chose not to spend his retirement, uh, there exactly at 65. Now, 
what's interesting is the, the, the theme of loneliness, but also isolation. Uh, it seems like there's more uh, in this part is more isolation than loneliness. Uh, I define loneliness as uh, uh, loneliness is more of a, uh, uh, of a situation where nobody's around. And for me, isolation is you intentionally want to be uh, alone. So there's some intentionality with isolation. And it seems like uh, this, this line here uh, kind of, uh, kind of hints at isolation. Uh, theology, yeah, okay, so I did the religious. Oh, um, and when, when Valerian was talking about his son, and he, uh, they were saying that Michael was a purveyor of exotics, a typical anthropologist, a cultural orphan who sought other cultures he could love without risk or pain. Uh, that was interesting because, you know, you have the white liberals who like to, you know, hang out with black people, hang out with Indian, you know, Native Americans and think that they're part of their culture, but uh, in a sense, they're not because they, you know, they're still white. Uh, they don't, uh, uh, they don't, they're not tortured or uh, abused and subjugated, just like the people they're trying to hang out with. Um, and uh, what was so interesting is later on, he says, uh, in the space that flash, he felt not only as Michael must have when he urged Jade to do something for her people, no matter how silly his instruction, but something, but something more. So yes, these uh, so-called uh, these so-called friends of of black people and and other non-white people, they like to you know uh, tell other black people and other non-white people that you need to do more for your people. And, you know, all this crazy talk uh, in the system of white supremacy, they don't even uh, experience the same pain, uh, the same subjugation uh, as non-white people uh, have uh, in this system of white supremacy. And uh, that is, uh, that's all I have right now in my life. Much obliged, Henry in Chicago. That is a uh, great passage, uh, Mr. Uh, Valerian's uh, critique of his son, Michael, where he says, um, he, this is uh, Mr. Valerian, he believed that Michael was a purveyor of exotics, a typical anthropologist, a cultural orphan who sought other cultures he could not love without, he could love without risk or pain. Valerian hated them, not from any hatred of the minority, or alien culture, but because of what he saw to be the falseness and fraudulence of the anthropological position. The Indian problem, he told Michael, was between Indians, their conscience, and their own daring do. And all of this, all of his loving treks from ghetto to reservation to barrio to migrant farm were searches for people in whose company the Michaels could enjoy the sorrow they were so could enjoy the sorrow they were embarrassed to feel for themselves mm. Mm. that is quite a paragraph you might even have to read three four times to ponder on and to then think about the real michaels and michelles of the world 
who travel exactly everywhere. Miss Morrison, uh, the Grand Sester name, the barrio, the ghetto, the shanty town, because they will travel global system of white supremacy uh, anywhere where you have non-white people that are living in tatters, not doing well because of the system of racism and then go to cry and whine or decide that they want to dance uh, with the people or maybe make a documentary film uh, about the people. Just absolutely love it. Didn't we hear this with Hurricane Katrina? We'll go down to New Orleans and see where the niggas drowned mm, and take pictures. Mm. Got a name for it sometimes called it disaster tourism. Go down. It'd be good. Great time to go down to the Bahamas now. See all the niggers that we drowned down there. Excellent uh, passage uh, and even giving more insight uh, from the dad's perspective. And again, sometimes you get to see different uh, one racist. You can see another racist. In my view, Michael, that can be considered the more refined racist. He's called he's even calling out some of the bourgeois Uncle Tom black people, in addition to calling out these uh, white people and protesting them and going to Berkeley and all the rest. And then you got the older generation uh, of the racist. I don't want to do any of all that. I'm comfortable hiring, you know, the Negras can treat them well. Run my empire, move down here to the Caribbean and probably do some other taking advantage, kill off their species that I don't like down here, wipe out their environment, make it what I want. My own little personal racist ecosystem, just different methods of practicing racism, white supremacy. He probably did some of the same things that his son did when he was younger, married a 20 uh, woman, 20 years, his junior why would I not think he's out doing some of the same things of uh, his son and some of the same things that uh, Jadine is talking about with Rick who sent her this black seal skin coat I'll pause there any other thoughts Mr. Demery for anything else you want to add or anyone else if you have a comment minute or two before we get to our second audio segment yes can I be heard yes sir Okay, you mentioned about the food, the description of the food. I noticed that, you know, in the in Valerian's house, they're eating several course meals and delicious, uh, healthy foods. And then I don't think that they gotten to this point yet, but at one point, I think uh, Gideon takes a chicken head and some feet and uh, I didn't even know that chicken heads were edible but I guess that they are and in a case like this you know you would make things edible that probably wasn't necessarily you know too palatable but the fruit and vegetables that come into the island, it was mentioned that they come in wilted and rotten and white people control all of this. And if you have a garden, I guess that you can have fresh vegetables, but other than that, you at the mercy of uh, the fruits and vegetables that come in once a month and they probably, uh, most of it is probably not edible. So white people in charge of uh, the not only the nutritional value of the food, but just the condition of all the foods too. I'll mute my mind. 
Important point. I remember that as well. I think it was uh, Yardman uh, when they were introducing his character and talked about how he was able to slip into the island uh, with apples. I think he had 12 apples that he was able to get through uh, customs with. Uh, but yeah, so much detail uh, to the food. We can, I guess, really be mindful of that and see if we can pick out uh, what Tony Morrison is uh, wanting us to focus on with all this rich detail uh, about the foods and the menus and the meals and how we got so much detail last week when uh, Sun was eating uh, about the way he was eating and they felt safer when he was scarfing his food down like a wild animal. Uh, anything else folks need to get in before we push off to second audio segment, get back to uh, chapter five. Hey Gus, um, when you were talking about <clears throat> the hurricane Katrina victims, as we were talking about Michael and, you know, white liberals uh, who want to save non-white people. It's, it's so interesting uh, in Southern Illinois here. Uh, they, you know, they experience a lot of tornadoes and floods and, in predominantly uh, communities that are kind of, uh, that are white. And what's so interesting is when they have these disasters downstate, they're bringing supplies. I'm talking about not just food, but, you know, building supplies and, and, and stuff like that to kind of rebuild, you know, what was lost. And <clears throat> I don't see that when, you know, black communities or non-white communities, you know, are hit hard with uh, natural disasters. So, uh, that was uh, that was something I thought about and was interesting uh, when you had mentioned that. So uh, I'll be my life. Mm. We can come to watch you suffer. We cannot come uh, with efficient resources to help solve your problems immediately. But we can come get selfies. Tell us about how you almost died. Tell us your your site exact sheet. The brilliance of Toni Morrison, uh, the let's see, all of the loving treks from the ghetto to the reservation to the barrio to migrant barn were searches for people in whose company the Michaels could enjoy the sorrow they were embarrassed to feel for themselves. I would even say that might be a touch of uh, masochism. We did have that referenced uh, in the book. He talked about uh, make sure we're correct here. Oh, yeah, I'm going to take that one. Exactly. Oh, this would be from one's own pain or humiliation. I guess it would be closer to sadism uh, to enjoy uh, other people being abused or in sorrow down and out. It would definitely uh, qualify in my view. Anywho, uh, we will pick back up uh, chapter five. Uh, I think I lost my place here. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Oh, here we go. Uh Sidney had put some of his boss's old clothes in the guest room for him, and Valerian sent him off with Gideon to get a haircut. There we go. That's what we're picking up at audio segment number two. This is Toni Morrison, the grandsister. Her 1981 novel, Tar Baby, Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number two. Sidney had put some of his boss's old clothes in the guest room for him, and Valerian sent him off with Gideon to get a haircut because Sidney refused flat out to cut it. Valerian half expected the man would get into town and not return, since he had given him enough money to buy some underwear and some shoes that fit him better than his did. While Valerian had dinner alone that night, served by a silent, steeping butler, and while Margaret pouted in her room and Jadine ate with Andine in the kitchen, 
Mr. Green, alias Sun, drifted off with Gideon and Therese in the Prix de France. With country people's pride in a come-from-far guest, they paraded the American Negro through the streets of town like a king. Gideon even got one of his friends to give them a free taxi ride to the outskirts of town, and then they had to walk and walk and walk up into the hills to Place du Vent before they reached the powder-pink house where he lived with Therese and sometimes Alma Estée. Therese was in ecstasy and kept moving her head about, the better to see him out of her broken eyes. As soon as they had got ashore, she let it be known to every island black she saw that they had a guest, a visitor from the States, and that he was going to spend the night. Her pride and her message ran all over the streets and up the hillside, and at various times during the evening, heads poked in her doorway and neighbors dropped by on some pretense or other. Therese sent Alma Este flying back down the hill to the market for a packet of brown sugar, and she went into the bag that hung by her side under her dress for money for goat meat and two onions. Then she brewed black, thick coffee while she listened to the men talk and waited her turn. Gideon told her stories on Ile de Chevalier, but here at home he did not socialize with her. He kept to himself or spent his free time with old cronies. Only at work on the island of the rich Americans did he entertain her. Now she was to be privy to the talk between them, and in her house at that. She would also have a chance to ask the American black herself whether it was really so that American women killed their babies with their fingernails. She waited until Gideon had cut his hair with clippers he'd borrowed from the man who sold rum waited until great clouds of glittering graphite hair fell to the floor and on the bedspread they had wrapped around the man's neck and the front of his whole body, waited until Gideon was through with his boasts about when he was in the States, boasts about the nurse he had married, the hospital he had worked in, the hatefulness of that nurse and all American women, waited until Gideon had lied about all the money he made there and why he returned home, waited until the stranger who ate chocolate and drank bottled water was properly shorn and his neck dusted with baking soda and Alma Este was back and the meat was frying on the two-burner stove, waited till they ate it and drank coffee loaded with sugar, waited till they opened the bottle of rum and the chocolate eater had coughed like a juvenile with his first taste of it. Therese served the two men but did not eat with them. Instead, she stood at the portable stove, burning the hair she had swept up from the floor, burning it carefully and methodically with many glances at the chocolate eater to show him she meant him no evil. When they had eaten and Therese had grown accustomed to the rhythm of their guest's English, she joined them at the table. Alma Este sat on the cot by the window. Sun smoked Gideon's cigarettes and poured the rest of the rum into his coffee. He stretched his legs and permitted himself a hearthside feeling, comfortable and free of postures and phony accents. The tough goat meat, the smoked fish, the pepper-hot gravy over the rice settled in him. It had been served all on one plate, and he knew what the delicacies had cost them. The sweet, thick cookies, the canned milk, 
and especially the rum. The nakedness of his face and head made him vulnerable, but his hosts gave him adoration to cover it. Alma Este had taken off her short print dress and returned in her best clothes, a school uniform. But Sun knew right away that she had not had school tuition for a long time now. The uniform was soiled and frayed. He could feel her waves of desire washing over him, and for the first time in years, he felt like a well-heeled man. Therese urged him on into a feast of plantain and fried avocado, then leaned toward him in the lamplight, her broken eyes cheerful, and asked him, Is it true? American women reach into their wombs and kill their babies with their fingernails? Close down your mouth, Gideon said to her, and then to Sun. She's gone stupid as well as blind. He explained to Sun that he used to tell her what working in an American hospital was like, about free abortions and DNCs, the scraping of the womb, but that Therese had her own views of understanding that had nothing to do with the world's views, that however he tried to explain a blood bank to her or an eye bank, she always twisted it. The word bank, he thought, confused her. And it was true. Therese said America was where doctors took the stomachs, eyes, umbilical cords, the backs of the neck where the hair grew, blood, sperm, hearts, and fingers of the poor, and froze them in plastic packages to be sold later to the rich, where children as well as grown people slept with dogs in their beds, where women took their children behind trees in the park and sold them to strangers, where everybody on the television set was naked and that even the priests were women, where for a bar of gold, a doctor could put you into a machine and, in a matter of minutes, would change you from a man to a woman or a woman to a man, where it was not uncommon or strange to see people with both penises and breasts. Both, she said, a man's parts and a woman's on the same person, yes? Yes, said Sun. And they grow food in pots to decorate their houses? Avocado and banana and potato and limes? Sun was laughing. Right, he said. Right. Don't encourage her, man, said Gideon. She's a mean one and one of the blind race. You can't tell them nothing. They love lies. Therese said she was not of that race, that the blind race lost their sight around 40, and she was into her 50s, and her vision had not gone dark until a few years ago. Gideon started to tease her about being into her fifties. Sixties more like, he said, and she had faked sight so long she didn't remember herself when she started to go blind. Sun asked who were the blind race, so Gideon told him a story about a race of blind people descended from some slaves who went blind the minute they saw Dominique. A fisherman's tale, he said. The island where the rich Americans lived is named for them, he said. Their ship foundered and sank with Frenchmen, horses, and slaves aboard. The blinded slaves could not see how or where to swim, so they were at the mercy of the current and the tide. They floated and trod water and ended up on that island along with the horses that had swum ashore. Some of them were only partially blinded and were rescued later by the French and returned to Queen of France and indenture. The others, totally blind, hid. 
the ones who came back had children who, as they got on into middle age, went blind too. What they saw, they saw with the eye of the mind, and that, of course, was not to be trusted. Therese, he said, was one such. He himself was not, since his mother and Therese had different fathers. Son felt dizzy. The cheap rum and the story together made his head light. What happened to the ones who hid on the island? Were they ever caught? No, man, still there, said Gideon. They ride those horses all over the hills. They learn to ride through the rainforest, avoiding all sorts of trees and things. They race each other, and for sport, they sleep with the swamp women in Saint-Davier. Just before a storm, you can hear them screwing way over here. Sounds like thunder, he said, and burst into derisive laughter. Sun laughed, too, then asked, Seriously, did anybody ever see one of them? No, and they can't stand for sighted people to look at them without their permission. No telling what they'll do if they know you saw them. We thought you was one, said Therese. She thought, said Gideon. Not me. Personally, I think the blindness comes from second-degree syphilis. Therese ignored this remark. I was the one made him leave the window that way, so you could get the food, said Therese. You did that? Son smiled at her. Therese tapped her chest bone with pride. Ms. Therese, love of my life, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Son took her hand and kissed the knuckles. Therese shrieked and cackled with happiness. I said you wouldn't ask Machete here for anything, so I left food for you in the wash house. You never came for it. Machete hair? The cook? That one. That devil the one I almost drowned myself for twice a week. No matter what the weather, I got to drown myself to get there. Don't listen to her. She knows those waters just like the fishermen. She doesn't like the Americans for meanness. Just because they're a little snooty sometimes. I get along with them okay. When they say to let Therese go, I say okay, but I bring her right back and tell them it's a brand new woman. They don't know? Not yet. They don't pay her any attention. Stimulated by the hand kiss, Therese wanted to ask more questions about the women who clawed their wombs, but Gideon grew loud and stopped her. She was a wet nurse, he told Son, and made her living from white babies. Then formula came and she almost starved to death. Fishing kept her alive. Infamil, said Therese, banging her fist on the table. How can you feed a baby a thing calling itself infamil? Sounds like murder and a bad reputation. But my breasts go on giving, she said. I got milk to this day. Go away, woman. Who wants to hear about your wretched teats? Go on out of here. Gideon shooed her, and she left the table, but not the room. When she was quiet, Gideon waved his arm about the house and told Son, You welcome here any time you want. His arm took in the cot where Therese slept at night, the floor where Alma Estes sometimes slept, and the tiny bedroom where he did. Son nodded. Thanks. I mean it. Any time. Not much life going on over there. Maybe you could find work here. Plenty work here and you young. Son sipped rum-laced coffee, wondering why, 
If there was plenty work there, Gideon wasn't doing any of it. How long have you been working over there? Three years steady now, off and on before. They used to come seasonal. Did you become a citizen in the States? Sure. Why you think I married that crazy nurse woman? Got a passport and everything. But listen, I don't let on over there that I can read. Too much work they give you. Instructions about how to install this and that. I make out that I can't read at all. You've been away so long, you must have lost your citizenship by now. Gideon shrugged. The U.S. is a bad place to die in, he said. He didn't regret it. The only thing he regretted was his unemployment insurance. A marvelous, marvelous thing that was. You had to hand it to the U.S. They knew how to make money, and they knew how to give it away. The most generous people on the globe. Now the French were as tight as a virgin, but the Americans, ah. After a while, they were quiet. Therese was breathing heavily, so Sun thought she was asleep. He could not see her eyes, but Alma's were bright and on him. You going back, asked Gideon, to the island? I don't know. You want to get in there, don't you, eh? That yalla. Gideon stroked his chin. Man, said Sun. Oh, man. He said it with enthusiasm, but he put a period in his voice, too. He didn't want her chewed over by Gideon's stone-white teeth, didn't want her in Gideon's mind, his eye. It unnerved him to think that Gideon had looked at her at all. The old man heard the period in his voice and turned the conversation to serious advice. Your first yalla? he asked. Look out. It's hard for them not to be white people. Hard, I'm telling you. Most never make it. Some try, but most don't make it. She's not a yalla, said Son, just a little light. He didn't want any discussion about shades of black folk. Don't fool yourself. You should have seen her two months ago. What you see is tanning from the sun. Yallas don't come to being black natural-like. They have to choose it, and most don't choose it. Be careful of the stuff they put down. I'll be careful. Come on, said Gideon. Let's go see some of the boys. Let me show you this place. Paradise, boy. Paradise. They got up to leave, and Alma Este sprang into life. She stood near the door and stretched out her hand. Sun stopped and smiled at her. You think, she said, whispering, you think you can send to America for me and buy me a wig? I have the picture of it. And she pulled from the pocket of her school blazer a folded picture, which she tried her best to show him before Gideon pushed her away. Tarzan, mind if I use his piano? It was incredible what Hickey Freeman and a little Paco Rabanne could do. He held the jacket by his forefinger over his shoulder. With the other hand, he struck the keys. Jadine was startled. In a white shirt unbuttoned at the cuffs and throat, and with a gentle homemade haircut, he was gorgeous. He had preserved his mustache, but the kinky beard was gone, along with the chain gang hair. If I were wearing Tarzan's suit, she said, I'd show a little respect. That's why I asked. I'm showing respect. Then ask him yourself. 
she answered and turned to leave. She had been sitting in the living room after lunch waiting for Margaret when he entered and stood at the piano. She was impressed and relieved by his looks, but his behavior in her bedroom was uppermost in her mind. Wait, he said. I want to talk to you. Apologize. I'm sorry about yesterday. Good, she said and kept walking. You can't forgive me, he asked. Jadine stopped and turned around. Uh-uh. Why not? He stayed near the piano but looked directly at her, the question apparently important to him. Jadine took a few steps toward him. I don't have to explain anything to you. But I said I'm sorry. You can figure out why I did it, can't you? You were so clean standing in that pretty room, and I was so dirty. I was ashamed, kinda, so I got mad and tried to dirty you. That's all, and I'm sorry. Okay. You're sorry you did it. I'm sorry you did it. Let's just drop it. She turned around once more. Wait. What for? I want to play you something. He tossed his jacket on the piano lid and sat down on the stool. Would you believe this is one of the things I used to do for a living? He played a chord, then another, and tried a whole phrase, but his fingers would not go where he directed them. Slowly, he took his hands away from the keys and stared at them. Couldn't have been much of a living, she said. It wasn't. I could barely keep up with the drums when I was cooking my best. Now... He turned his hands over and looked up at her with a very small smile. Maybe I'll just do the melody. He tapped out a line. I don't like what you did, hear? So don't play any songs for me. Hard, he said without looking up. Hard, hard lady. Right. Okay, I quit. I just wanted to tell you I was sorry and that you don't have to be nervous anymore. I'm not nervous, she answered. I was never nervous. I was mad. Or mad either. She walked toward him now and leaned an elbow on the piano, her thumbnail pressed into her bottom teeth. I suppose Valerian invited you to stay for Christmas. Did he? Didn't he? I don't know. I just got back this minute. Jadine stepped away from the piano and looked out the sliding glass doors. He was carrying on this morning about some flower you made, Bloom. Oh, that. He hasn't got enough wind in there. It needed shaking. You some sort of farmer? No, just a country boy. Well, listen, country boy. My aunt and uncle are upset. You go and apologize to them. Their name is Childs, Sidney and Andine Childs. I had to throw the pajamas you left in my bathroom out the window so they wouldn't see them. You don't have to apologize to me. I can take care of myself, but you apologize to them. All right, he said, and she sure did look it, like she could take care of herself. He did not know that all the time he tinkled the keys, she was holding tight to the reins of dark dogs with silver feet. For she was more frightened of his good looks than she had been by his ugliness the day before. She watched him walk away, saying, See you later and thought that two months in that place with no man at all made even a river rat look good. There was no denying the fact 
that looking at his face and keeping her voice stern required some concentration. Spaces, mountains, savannas, all those were in his forehead and eyes. Too many art history courses, she thought, had made her not perceptive but simple-minded. She saw planes and angles and missed character. Like the vision in yellow, she should have known that bitch would be the kind to spit at somebody, and now this man with savannas in his eyes was distracting her from the original insult. She wanted to sketch him and get it over with, but when she thought of trying to lay down that space and get the eagle beak of his nose, she got annoyed with herself. And did he have a cleft in his chin? Jadine closed her eyes to see it better, but couldn't remember. She left the room and climbed the stairs quickly. Christmas will be over soon. She had called Air France just as she promised Margaret she would, but she also made a reservation for herself for December 28th, standby, just in case. This winter retreat thing was running out anyway. She had not accomplished anything, was more at Lucien's here than anywhere. At least in Paris there was work, excitement. She thought she had better go to New York, do this job, and then return to Paris and reek. The idea of starting a business of her own, she thought, was a fumble. Valerian would lend her the money, she knew, but maybe that was a sidestep too. It was a silly age, 25, too old for teenage dreaming, too young for settling down. Every corner was a possibility and a dead end. Work? At what? Marriage? Work and marriage? Where? Who? What can I do with this degree? Do I really want to model? It was nothing like she thought it would be. Soft and lovely smiles in soft and lovely clothes. It was knife hard, and everybody frowned and screamed all the time. And if ever she wanted to paint a predatory jungle scene, she would use the faces of the people who bought the clothes. She was bored and no more together than the river rat. She kept calling him that. River rat. Sidney called him swamp nigger. What the hell did he say his name was? And even if she could remember it, would she say it out loud without reaching for the leash? Sun went immediately from the living room piano to the kitchen and, finding it empty, walked down to the lower kitchen, which was empty also. He retraced his steps and noticed a door on the landing to the short flight of stairs separating the kitchens. He rapped shortly and a voice said, Yes? He opened the door. Mrs. Childs? Undine was soaking her feet in a basin. At first she thought it was Yard Man. He alone on the island called her that. Even the Filipinos over at the nearest house called her Andine. But the clean-shaven man in the doorway was not Yard Man. Jadine said it was all right if I came to see you, he said. What you want? To apologize. I didn't mean to scare everybody. Son did not allow himself a smile. Well, I'd hate to think what would be the case if you had meant to. I was a little off from not eating. Drove me a little nuts, ma'am. You could have asked, Andine said. You could have come to the door decent-like and asked. Yes, ma'am, but I'm like an outlaw. 
I jumped ship. I couldn't take a chance, and I stayed too hungry to think. I was in a little trouble back in the States, too. I'm, you know, just out here trying to hang in. What kind of trouble? Car trouble. Wrecked a car and couldn't pay for it. No insurance, no money, you know. Undine was watching him closely. Sitting in a chintz rocker, rubbing one foot against the other in an Epsom salt solution. The difference between this room and the rest of the house was marked. Here were second-hand furniture, table scarves, tiny pillows, scatter rugs, and the smell of human beings. It had a tacky permanence to it, but closed. Closed to outsiders. No visitors ever came in here. There were no extra chairs, no display of tea set. Just the things they used, Sidney and Andine, and used well. A stack of Philadelphia Tribunes piled neatly on the coffee table. Worn house slippers to the left of the door. Photographs of women with their legs crossed at the ankles and men standing behind wicker chairs, touching them lightly with their fingers. Groups of people standing on stairs. One blue-tinted photograph of a man with magnificent handlebar mustaches. All dressed-up black people of some earlier day who looked like they had serious business at hand. Undine sensed his absorption of her apartment. Not as grand, I suppose, as where you sleep. Now he did smile. Too grand, he said. Much too grand for me. I feel out of place there. I shouldn't wonder. I want to apologize to your husband, too. Is he here? He'll be back in a minute. Sun thought she sounded like the single woman who answers the door and wants the caller to think there is a huge, tough male in the next room. I'll be gone soon. Mr. Street said he would help me get papers. He has friends in town, he says. She looked skeptical. But even if he doesn't, I've got to make tracks. I just don't want you upset or worried. I didn't come here for no harm. Well, I'm more inclined to believe you now that you had a bath. You was one ugly something. I know. Don't think I don't know it. You went off with Yardman yesterday? It bothered him that everybody called Gideon Yardman as though he had not been mothered. Yes, ma'am, he said. Mr. Street told me to. I spent the night there. I started to just stay on there since that's where I was heading for in the first place. But I didn't want to leave without making peace with you all. My own mama wouldn't forgive me for that. Where is your own mama? Dead now. We live in Florida, just my father, my sister, and me. But I don't know if he's alive still. Undine saw the orphan in him and rubbed her feet together. What line of work you in? I've been at sea off and on for eight years, all over. Dry cargo, mostly. Rex. Married? Yes, ma'am, but she's dead, too. It was when she died that I got in that car trouble and had to leave Florida before they threw me in jail. That's when I started fooling around on docks. Huh. What's the matter with your feet, Mrs. Childs? Tired. Stand on any feet for 30 years and they might talk back. You should put banana leaves in your shoes. Better than Dr. Scholl's. Is that so? Yeah. Want me to get you some? I'll get them if I want to, later on. Well, I'll leave you alone now. 
and he turned to go just as Sidney walked in. His face zigzagged like lightning as soon as he saw who was standing there talking to his wife. What are you doing in my place? Andine held up a hand. He came to apologize, Sidney. Son moved aside so he would not be standing between them and said, Yes, sir. Anything you got to say to me or my wife, you say it somewhere else. Don't come in here. You are not invited in here. It was Jadine, Son began. She suggested, Jadine can't invite you in here. Only I can do that. And let me tell you something now. If this was my house, you would have a bullet in your head. Right there. And he pointed to a spot between Son's eyebrows. You can tell it's not my house because you are still standing upright. But this here is. He pointed a finger at the floor. Mr. Childs, you have to understand me. I was surprised as anybody when he told me to stay. Sidney interrupted him again. You have been lurking around here for days, and a suit and a haircut don't change that. I'm not trying to change it. I'm trying to explain it. I was in some trouble and left my ship. I couldn't just knock on the door. Don't hand me that mess. Save it for people who don't know better. You know what I'm talking about. You was upstairs. I was wrong, okay? I took to stealing food and started wandering around in here. I got caught, okay? I'm guilty of being hungry, and I'm guilty of being stupid, but nothing else. He knows that. Your boss knows that. Why don't you know it? Because you are not stupid, and because Mr. Street don't know nothing about you, and don't care nothing about you. White folks play with Negroes. It entertained him, that's all, inviting you to dinner. He don't give a damn what it does to anybody else. You think he cares about his wife? That you scared his wife? If it entertained him, he'd hand her to you. Sidney, Andine was frowning. It's true. You know him all this time, and you think that? She asked him. You tell me, he answered. You ever see him worry over her? Andine did not answer. No, you don't. And he don't worry over us neither. What he want is for people to do what he says do. Well, it may be his house, but I live here too, and I don't want you around. Sidney turned back to Son, pointing at him again. Mr. Childs, Son spoke softly but clearly. You don't have to be worried over me either. But I am. You the kind of man that does worry me. You had a job. You chucked it. You got in some trouble, you say, so you just ran off. You hide, you live in secret, underground, surface when you caught. I know you, but you don't know me. I am a Philadelphia Negro, mentioned in the book of the very same name. My people owned drugstores and taught school while yours was still cutting their faces open so as to be able to tell one of you from the other. And if you look in the lounge here and live off the fat of the land, and if you think I'm going to wait on you, think twice. He'll lose interest in you faster than you can blink. You already got about all you can get out of this place, a suit and some new shoes. Don't get another idea in your head. I'm leaving, Mr. Childs. He said he'd help me get a visa, something, so I can get back home. So you don't need no visa to go home. You a citizen, ain't you? Well, I use another name. I mean, I don't want nobody checking me out. Take my advice. Clean your life up. Son sighed. 
He had told six people in two days all about himself, had talked more about himself than he had in years, and told each of them as much of the truth as he had to. Sidney, he knew from the start, would be the hardest to convince, but he kept calling him Mr. Childs and Sir, and allowing in gesture as how he was a reprobate, and ended by asking them both if they knew somewhere else he could sleep while he waited for Mr. Street to get the visa and some identification for him. Outside, if need be, he said. It would just be one more night, he thought, and he didn't feel comfortable up there on the second floor. The couple exchanged glances, and Sidney said he'd think about it. Maybe on the patio outside the kitchen they could fix something up for him. I'd appreciate it, son said. And would you do me one more favor? Could you let me eat in the kitchen with you all? They nodded, and Sun left quickly, pleased, rather, that Sidney thought he was interested in Valerian's generosity. The house locked back together that evening and busied itself for Christmas. In Andine's kitchen, Sun ate so much of her food, she softened considerably toward him. Sidney was less accommodating than his wife, but he could not doubt the man's hunger and his ways were quiet and respectful, almost erasing the memory of that high. By the time they finished eating and reminiscing about the States, Sidney was calling him son. Valerian and Margaret and Jadine had eaten together in the dining room earlier, Sidney serving regally. Margaret was mollified by two telephone calls and a window view of the man who'd been in her closet which made her feel, as Jadine apparently did now, that he was harmless. At any rate, he was not sleeping upstairs, she'd been informed by Jadine, nor eating with them, and maybe Michael would enjoy him if he was still on the property then, especially if B.J. didn't show. The travel agency said the ticket had not been picked up yet. She tried to hang on to her despair about Valerian, but it was hopeless. He was tickled to death by the sight of four cyclamen blossoms, so happy he was considering putting down mirrors for the ants. He'd gone around all morning beating up other plants, especially his miniature orange trees which had come with no blossoms or fruit. He had even drafted a letter to the consulate asking whether a B-class visa could be arranged for a local employee of his, and he spoke of Michael's visit as though it were a reality. They were amiable that evening, relaxed. Valerian cracked jokes that were not funny back in the 50s. Margaret chattered and thought up extra niceties for the holidays and ended by insisting that she would cook the Christmas dinner herself. It was to be a really old-fashioned Christmas, and that required the woman of the house to be bustling in the kitchen with an apron, roasting turkey and baking apple pies. Valerian should call the consulate. They would have some apples. They always got American produce. Valerian said she'd never made a crust in her life, and he wasn't looking forward to an experiment at Christmas. But Margaret wouldn't listen. She was hyper and happy. Michael was on his way. Valerian thought she had gone hog-wild this time, but her cheer cheered him, and he encouraged rather than spoiled it. The quiet amiability lasted the whole evening, and there was rest in everybody's sleep that night, except Sun's. He was swinging in a hammock outside in the night wind with that woman on his mind. 
He had managed a face for everybody but her. The others were seduced by the Hickey Freeman suit and the haircut, but she was not, and neither was he. Not seduced at all. He did not always know who he was, but he always knew what he was like. The soldier ants were not out in the night wind, neither were the bees, but heavy clouds grouped themselves behind the hills as though for a parade. You could almost see the herd assemble, but the man swinging in the hammock was not aware of them. He was dwelling on his solitude, rocking in the wind, adrift. A man without human rights, unbaptized, uncircumcised, minus puberty rights or the formal rights of manhood, unmarried and undivorced. He had attended no funeral, married in no church, raised no child, propertyless, homeless, sought for but not after. There were no grades given in his school, so how could he know when he had passed? He used to want to go down in blue water, down, down, then to rise and burst from the waves to see before him a single hard surface, a heavy thing, but intricate. He would enclose it, conquer it, for he knew his power then. And it was perhaps because the world knew it too that it did not consider him able. The conflict between knowing his power and the world's opinion of it secluded him, made him unilateral. But he had chosen solitude and the company of other solitary people, opted for it when everybody else had long ago surrendered, because he never wanted to live in the world their way. There was something wrong with the rights. He had wanted another way, some other way of being in the world that he felt leaving him when he stood in the white towel watching Yardman's, Gideon's, back. But something had come loose in him, like the ball that looped around the roulette wheel, carried as much by its own weight as by the force of the wheel. In those eight homeless years, he had joined that great underclass of undocumented men, and although there were more of his kind in the world than students or soldiers, unlike students or soldiers, they were not counted. They were an international legion of day laborers and musclemen, gamblers, sidewalk merchants, migrants, unlicensed crewmen on ships with volatile cargo, part-time mercenaries, full-time gigolos, or curbside musicians. What distinguished them from other men, aside from their terror of social security cards and cedula de identitad, was their refusal to equate work with life and an inability to stay anywhere for long. Some were Huck Finns, some nigger Jims, others were Calibans, Stagger Lees, and John Henrys. Anarchic, wandering, they read about their hometowns in the pages of out-of-town newspapers. Since 1971, Sun had been seeing the United States through the international edition of Time, by way of shortwave radio and the views of other crewmen. It seemed sticky, loud, red, and sticky, its fields spongy, its pavements slick with the blood of all the best people. As soon as a man or woman did something generous or said something bold, pictures of their funeral lines appeared in the foreign press. It repelled him and made him suspicious of all knowledge he could not witness or feel in his bones. When he thought of America, he thought of the tongue that the Mexican drew in Uncle Sam's mouth. A map of the U.S. 
as an ill-shaped tongue ringed by teeth and crammed with the corpses of children. The Mexican had presented it to him with a smile the day Sun bashed the snapper's head in. Americano, said the Mexican, and handed him the picture that he'd drawn in prison and kept in his locker. They were close to Argentina and had been fishing off the prowl that morning, pulling in snappers so rapidly they seemed to be leaping onto the deck. All but Sun. The Swede and the Mexican, the two he was closest to, laughed at his spectacular bad luck. Suddenly a bite, and he reeled in a huge glitter of froth and steel. The friends watched admiringly as the fish flopped into death. But when Sun bent down to remove the hook, the fish executed a dazzling final arc three feet above the deck and slapped his face. The Mexican and the Swede laughed like children, and Sun, holding the tail down with his knee, bashed with his fist the snapper's head. The mouth pulped, and a little eye skittered across the deck. The Swede roared, but the Mexican was suddenly quiet, and later handed him the drawing, saying, Americano. Cierto americano, es verdad, and maybe it was so. In any case, if he was punching dying fish in anger, if he was pricked to fury by the outrageous claim of a snapper on its own life, stunned by its refusal to cooperate with his hook, to want, goddammit, to surrender itself for his pleasure, then perhaps he was cierto americano, and it was time to go home. Not to the sticky red place, but to his home in it. That separate place that was presided over by wide black women in snowy dresses and was ever dry, green, and quiet. There weren't going to be any impalas or water buffalo, no mating dance, no trophies. There was dice instead of tusk. A job when he wanted a journey. And the lion he believed was exclusive to his past and his alone was frozen in stone. Can you beat it? In front of the New York Public Library in a city that had laughed at his private's uniform. Like an Indian seeing his profile diminished on a five-cent piece, he saw the things he imagined to be his, including his own reflection, mocked, appropriated, marketed, and trivialized into decor. He could not give up the last thing left to him, fraternity, on the ocean and in lockups, he had it. In tiny bars and shape-up halls, he had it. And if he was becoming Cierto Americano, he'd better go where he could never be deprived of it, home. He wanted to go home, but that woman was on his mind, the one whose dreams he had tried to change and whom he had insulted to keep her unhinging beauty from afflicting him and keeping him away from home. She is on my mind, he thought, but I am not on hers. What must it be like to be on her mind? And he guessed the only way to know was to find out. The next morning he asked her if she would like to eat lunch with him down on the beach. And she said, sure, I want to sketch down there before I go anyway. It surprised him into awkwardness, and the word go sent a ripple through him, exacerbating the awkwardness. She was getting ready to leave? Go somewhere? They took the willies, and she drove, saying almost nothing. 
She sat quietly under the wheel, in an expertly crushed white cotton halter and a wide, wide skirt that rich people called peasant and peasants called wedding, her skin damp and glowing against the Easter white cotton, all temptation and dare. When they got to the dock and parked, she jumped out with her sketch pad and box of pencils. He followed her with the basket, for she was leading the way, making little prints in the hard-packed sand. They walked about half a mile to a bend of good, clean sand and a clump of pineapple palms. They sat down, and she took off her canvas shoes. It was after they ate that carelessly assembled, hurriedly packed lunch that she seemed really aware of him, but only because she was opening her sketch pad and fiddling with the wooden box of pencils. She examined him then with an intent but distant eye and asked him a casual question which he answered by saying, My original dime. That's all. My original dime. The sun was hiding from them, and the mosquitoes were held off by a burning can of commercial repellent. The olives, French bread, uncuttable cheese, ham slices, jar of black mushy cherries, and wine left them both as hungry as they were when they started. And that will wrap us up uh, for our two audio segments this week. Context of white supremacy, we are still in chapter five. Enormous chapter. Uh, we will finish it uh, next week, making great progress galloping through the book. The number to dial, 605-313-5164. The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, we have uh, less than 30 minutes remaining in the program. So if you think you have a question comment something stood out uh we had some direct calling into question uh, about the names of some of the black characters uh in the second audio segment uh if you didn't get to participate the first time around and think you have a question or comment you uh would like to share before we conclude do not wait till the last minute go ahead and get your hand up now uh if you would like to chime in i'll keep an eye out on the switchboard uh let's see henry in chicago Mr. Demery 4, you all are with us. Uh, if I see other hands, I will nab them as well. Yes, ma'am, you <laughs> Mr. Demery 4, yes, sir. Okay, um, a few things. When uh, <clears throat> I guess Sydney. <clears throat> no, it was uh, Gideon that was taking uh, son in to get his hair cut, I guess. Uh, but when he got there, the book said, with country people's pride, when they come from far guests, they paraded the American Negro through the streets of town like a king. Gideon even got one of his friends to give them a free taxi ride to the outskirts of town, and then they had to walk and walk and walk up into the hills to a place to vent before they reached the Powder Peak house where he lived with Therese and sometimes all my estate. 
<clears throat> you know, I think that she's showing that, you know, it's a difference in the classes, I guess, of people because the ones living on the island <clears throat> would be excited, I guess, from the American Negro, you know, like he was some celebrity or whatever, but he didn't have anything either and was probably, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, some type of uh, fugitive or something. But in their eyes, just being from America, was something that uh, they thought was good. You know, and it's funny how when you don't live in this country and sit on the island, you got limited resources for news, the types of images that come into your mind of what's going on. Um, <clears throat> the one lady thought that banks, if it was a blood bank or some organ bank, that they kept all of your organs there. They would steal them illegally, although that probably do go on. Now, we do have accounts of that actually happening, selling body parts, but uh, <clears throat> in her illiterate mind, you know, she had the wrong image uh, about women uh, aborting their babies. Uh, that was a scraping of the wound that I guess uh, Gideon had told her about, but she misunderstood. But <clears throat> that's another thing. Misinformation and a lack of information is how a group of people can be controlled. And then the belief in folk tales and uh, that story about the blind people, I mean, how could that be believable um, when, you know, they were blind? But if you're going to tell a, a story like that, the blind slaves were the horsemen that were roaming the hills now, that would be just as unbelievable as the 100 horsemen that the white people, the guy in town and Valerian, believe that it was a hundred uh, white horsemen riding the hills. So probably somewhere in the middle, the truth lies, but <clears throat> uh, blind horses, horsemen, I guess would do as a, as a folklore. And it may be some resemblance of truth to it. I think Alma Estee was is a sad case. I don't know if she's the daughter of uh, Therese. If Therese's uh, occupation was a wet nurse, and she went out of business when formula came along. Uh, I guess it was Infamil. She's mad at Infamil. But <clears throat> limited uh, job resources, people had to resort to almost anything just to make a living. And then there's colorism here when uh, Gideon starts talking about a yellow, 
I guess, is a person of light skin, or he said that it's hard for them not to be white people. It's hard, I'm telling you. Most never make it. Some try, but most don't make it. I guess he, in his mind, the light-skinned black people was trying to be white. Um, One last thing. Uh, When they were, were, oh, the part when, I guess Mr. Charles was explaining he was a Philadelphia Negro mentioned in the book of the very same name that was actually a book Philadelphia the Philadelphia Negro was written by Dr. William E. B. Du Bois and she may have been making a reference to that book with uh this little tirade that uh uh Gideon Mr. Charles was on. Well, I'm, I'm eat my line because give you a chance to get some of your uh, thoughts in. But I have a couple more I'd like to speak about. Much obliged, uh, Mr. Demery, for great reference with the book, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. I have not read that title. I am pretty sure with... Uh, the grandsister, uh, Toni Morrison's brilliance and her love of literature, I'm pretty sure that was a deliberate book reference. Uh, let's see. Uh, Henry in Chicago, did you have uh, commentary that you wanted to add, sir? <clears throat> uh, yes. Um, <clears throat> starting off in the beginning of the uh, recording um, where they uh, were uh, Gideon uh, went so Gideon and Therese went and I guess they used the term paraded the American Negro through the streets, uh, through the streets of town like a king. Um, I have an issue with paraded because it kind of makes it seem like, uh, you know, there's a black man from America and, you know, treating him like some kind of exotic animal, you know. To, you know, just from my perspective. And I only say this because uh, I had an experience, uh, I had an experience in Turkey uh, where um, I was in Turkey with a group and there was uh, two Europeans who wanted to take a picture with me. And immediately uh, one of the non-white black uh, men, uh, he was Nigerian, he grabbed me and told, told me not to do that. And I asked him why, and he was like, well, you know, they uh, uh, they want to take a picture of you because you're just the black man from America and, you know, trying to treat you like an exotic animal. Like, hey, we're taking a picture with this black man, and, you know, uh, we you know we got a picture of him, you know. So uh, I was I was schooled on that, you know, as far as uh, international traveling and, and how white people like to take pictures with black men so they can go home and brag to their white friends about how they took picture with a black man uh, but that's kind of like the kind of like what I'm kind of seeing here in regards to that um, when he when they were talking about when they were asking questions about Americans uh, where he says for a bar of gold a doctor can put you in a machine and in a matter of minutes would change you from a man 
to a woman or a woman to a man, where it was not uncommon or strange to see people with both penises and breasts. Now, that's pretty interesting considering that she wrote this in 1981. Uh, contempt for gender, uh, uh, gender confusion, uh, this type of thing that's, that's kind of normal right now. Uh, so uh, I don't know if it, this was foreshadowing here. Uh, because, uh, yeah, like I said, this was written in 81, so uh, the uh, gender confusion wasn't as prevalent uh, back then as it, as it is now. Uh, what else did I have in here? Oh, I, uh, Sun's reference, referencing, I think he references himself as Tarzan. Um, confusion, uh, victim of white supremacy, so... Uh, you know, uh, kind of, kind of that confusion going on there. Uh, but what was interesting too was him trying to apologize to uh, Jadine about his actions, and Jadine not being very receptive, you know, of it, and uh, also to Jadine a victim. Um, when we realize what we're doing to each other, and we try to explain, it's sort of like. Uh, you know, we're not accepting it because, you know, you're still a low, dirty nigger. And, you know, just like I said, they're victims. Um, with Sydney, uh, what was interesting with Sydney was when he was talking to him uh, on page 163 when he said, uh, you're the kind of man that worries me. You had a job and you checked it. You got into some trouble, you say, so you just ran off. You hide and live in secret underground surface when you uh, when you caught, and it's uh, common uh, uh, victim blaming, uh, not just amongst white people uh, against us, but amongst us uh, non-white people who like to blame each other, you know, and not blame the uh, system of white supremacy uh, for the situations that we are in uh, right now. Um, Page 166, uh, uh, some more uh, references to loneliness, solitude, uh, but he had chosen solitude in the company uh, uh, of other solitary people. So that's a, for me, that's kind of like an ongoing theme of loneliness and isolation and solitude again. So kind of kind of trying to look at that and trying to piece that together. Um, that's all I have right now. I'll meet my life. Much obliged, uh, Henry in Chicago. Um, excellent points uh, from both Mr. Dermot Four and uh, Henry in Chicago. If any of the other folks that are listening in, again, if you have a question, thought, comment you want to get in, uh, we have about 10 minutes left. So you will have to be soon. Let's see. Uh, some of the notes that I took first. Mr. Dermot Four pointed out the Philadelphia Negro written by W.E.B. Dubois published in 1899 um, looking online uh, the book concludes with possible solutions um, reading Dubois ends his study with a section entitled the meaning of all this in this section he explains how the overarching dilemma that Negroes in America faced laid in their image in the eyes of the majority of Americans by changing how blacks are perceived in America from inferior to equally capable, many of the problems seen in the black community 
would subside. Dubois documents that if change is expected to occur in Philadelphia's black communities, both the black and white communities must work in tandem. He assigns responsibilities for blacks and whites in this section. VGQ, System of White Supremacy, it is 2019, almost 2020, and black people are still perceived as inferior and incapable as it relates to whites and everybody else. That is the system of white supremacy and that word community. Can't have a community if you're subject to racism. Notes that I took. Let's see. I appreciated uh, Tony. I feel like she's making so many subtle critiques of white people that might go unnoticed. Uh, We just had the in the previous section, the critique of Michael and these uh, whites who will go around to the reservation and the shanty town and the ghetto to study the Negras. And then in this section, she says uh, she's talking about America. Where children as well as grown people slept with dogs in their bed. Where women took their children behind trees in the park and sold them to strangers. Where everybody on the television set was naked and then even and that even the priests were women. We're in the bar of gold. We just heard uh, Henry in Chicago. I thought, hmm, perhaps this is Toni Morrison highlighting the homophobic nature of black people in the Caribbean. Maybe that's what she was doing uh, in this section. Maybe. Maybe she was ahead of the times with the LGBT uh, movement. Mm. Uh, Continuing. Let's see. The breastfeeding, we've been talking about that so much on uh, workplace racism. Uh, anything and again this is the same thing moving away from nature this is would be another example of food so much attention to food here uh, and the replacement with infamil that ran Teresa out of her job as a wet nurse uh, and she says uh, how can you feed a baby a thing calling itself infamil sounds like murder and a bad reputation Again, this uh, seeming battle between natural foods and just eating what's there. And no, I want to have instant formula. I want to get apples or produce that doesn't grow naturally on the island. They grow someplace else. I want to bring in these other animals to get rid of the species battling with nature, trying to replace nature. Uh, Let's see. A lot of anti-blackness in the way that the black characters talk about other black characters uh, we get the segment uh, where Gideon is talking to Son about Jadine, uh, and he says, look out, it's hard for them not to be white people. Hard, I'm telling you. Most never make it, some try, but most don't make it. Now, I wouldn't use the vernacular, it's hard for them not to be white people. But certainly being white identified, if we replaced it with that term, I'd say he's 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 kind of accurate. And I'd even go back to some of the things that Toni Morrison was saying in the interview that I read uh, from 1981, the year this book was published, about how she said Jadine was fearless and she was refined and intelligent and had all these assets uh, to go out and, and be fully integrated. That word I feel with a cowbell. And I said, I don't know. Fearless. We're kind of halfway through the book. What I've heard of Jadine's character is this point. I don't know that I would say she's fearless. It does seem like she has some trepidation about what to do 
what to do with the Rick situation, whether even to get a birthday present uh, from Michael. Remember, she talked about that. It does seem like she has trepidation with how to function with whites, not so much so with black people. She seems a little bit more has a little bit more might as it relates to sons. You know, she can call him a nigger and an ape and all this. Um, maybe she wouldn't have behaved that way with Rick. Uh, continuing. He describes car trouble when son, uh, he goes to apologize to Undine and Sydney and gives them a little bit more background information, trying to allay her fears that he's you know, not here to cause them any harm. Uh, and he says uh, he got in trouble. That was how all this started. He says, I got in uh, car trouble after my wife died. I wrecked a car, couldn't pay for it, no insurance, no money. You know, so many black people end up in greater confinement for lack of insurance. That is <laughs> such a common thing, just a little car accident or something of that nature. And everything changes. Sandra Bland didn't even have a car accident. Just something in a vehicle can ruin your entire life uh, for black people. That happens all the time. Uh, yeah, the Philadelphia part. I thought uh, Sydney's commentary uh, here as well. Oh, wait a minute. Before we can get to Sydney, when he says, Undine, she asked him if he went off with Yardman uh, the day before. And uh, some of our, our caller listeners talked about uh, their excursion uh, with Yardman, how they were so happy and showing him off to everybody about him hanging out in town. Uh, but son, he says it bothered him that everybody called Gideon Yardman as though he had not been mothered. I thought that was uh, quite a way of stating it, not just disrespect of his title, but as though he had not been mothered, as though he did not have parents who gave him a name. Uh, we're just going to call you Yard Man. Uh, really important. And that's such a common theme uh, for, uh, again, the grandsister, Tony Morrison, to be pointing this out. And with multiple black male characters, uh, Son and Gideon not being named and that just being, you know, that's standard, everybody, to not call them by their name or to make up another name to call them. Even when Sons uh, tells Valerian, William Streety calls him Willie. Signifying on that quite a bit throughout the whole text. Uh, but Sidney, he comes in and he's upset. He says, J.D. can't invite you in here. Only I can do that. And let me tell you something else. If this was my house, you would have a bullet in your head. <laughs> And he pointed to a spot between son's brows. You can't tell. You can tell it's not my house because you are still standing upright. But this here is he pointed a finger at the floor. I thought it was important. The few paragraphs down Sydney, he says, because you are not stupid and because Mr. Street don't know nothing about you and don't care nothing about you. White folks play with Negroes. That's why I said like this character is making quite uh Tony Morrison, excuse me, is making quite a few critiques of white people throughout this book that maybe they just get glossed over if you're rolling through. But I mean white folks play with Negroes. It entertained him, that's all, inviting you to dinner and I agree totally. Uh he, Mr. Street, hey, we could have him killed anytime. Can have him have sex with my wife or anything else. This is all entertainment. I'm amused by this nigra. Uh, he says he don't give a damn what it does to anybody else. You think he cares about his wife, that you scared his wife. It If it entertained him, he'd hand her to you. I totally agree with Sydney's analysis here. Wow. I'll hush there. Uh, 
a few minutes left before we conclude. Any of the other folks that are with us, I think Mr. Demery Ford said he did have uh, at least one other comment. Uh, did you want to share your other thought, Mr. Uh, Demery Ford? Oh, yes. Um, just a second here. Uh, um, I don't know if we talked about this. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> the other caller talked about the solitary company of the solitary people. Um, the, oh, the guy, did we talk about, yeah, he talked about the, <clears throat> did we talk about, uh, Frisco and the first dime that he made? Yes. No. Oh, okay. thought it was uh, pretty smart of uh, son as he was talking to Sydney he got an idea that uh, Sydney was going to be harder to convince than the rest of them and he had talked to <clears throat> the other people giving him information you know what happened how he ended up there and Sydney wasn't buying a lot of it but in the end, he asked um, if they could find him someplace where he could stay. He didn't feel comfortable staying upstairs, and uh, he asked if he could eat with them. And so they nodded, and Son left quickly, pleased rather that Sidney thought he was interested in Valerian's generosity. I thought it was pretty clever of Son to come up with that too. Um, I guess in the last book we read, <clears throat> it's called Teen. Uh, he kind of identified with those people and then they could uh, uh, show him some, some kindness and they would be the last ones that he would have to convince. Now I'm leaving my line on that, Gus. Thanks. Much obliged, Mr. Demery Four. That was one of uh, Mr. DeBecker's concepts in the Gift of Fear, uh, teaming uh, Son's decision to go eat with Andine and Sydney uh, to maybe get in their good graces. At least he can have some folks who don't think he's a rapist <laughs> that is going to kill them or rape someone in the next five seconds. Uh, we will pick up here next Friday. Uh, I guess it'll be autumn by then. We'll pick up here next, oh, excuse me, next Thursday. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Next Thursday, we'll pick up same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We'll be in Chapter 5 still. Uh, if you listen to the archives, have comments, questions, thoughts, feel free to drop an email. We can read your thoughts on the air as we continue moving on through the book. We'll be here tomorrow for Neutralizing Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And we'll be here Saturday for the compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. 6 p.m. Pacific. Much obliged to all the folks who listened, participated. Hope it was worthy of your Thursday evening. Reading is more important than watching television. As we state consistently, sobriety would be best 
under conditions of white supremacy came up in the text again this week. Sobriety would be best. Let's preserve that brain computer so that we can make phenomenal decisions to go about solving the problem. In addition to being sober, let's be buckled up every time we are in a vehicle. Son had his own vehicle trouble. Let's be buckled up every time uh, driver or passenger uh, just trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. If you're driving, definitely stay off that cell phone. We already have enough difficulties just making sure we got all our identification and proof of insurance, everything else. Let's not add to the difficulties. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.